Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by former co-host who has renounced his people and turned to a life of crime, Ollie Brady, and uh, Media Evil's professional Chris Pine correspondent, Tracy Tanoff. So Ollie, Tracy, welcome. <laughs> I would you. never renounce my people, Sarah. <laughs> of, all, <laughs> of all the possible, possible connections you're going to make to the movie, Ollie Brady, who renounced his people. You renounced your people in the sense of that you quit as host of this podcast. I did not. It's like you've left your tribe. I did not quit as host of the podcast. The podcast grew beyond my need to be on it. (laughs) Anyway, why don't you each tell the listeners about yourself and why you wanted to talk about this movie? Uh, I I don't know who wants to go first. Tracy, why don't you go first? Hi, um, I've been on the show before for the aforementioned Outlaw King starring Chris Pine and um, Six the Musical, and I am a 32-year-old queer woman with no medievalist qualifications to speak of other than that as a child I read like Lord of the Rings and other like medieval-inspired fantasy. But um, yeah, my interest in this movie um, mainly was um, Chris Pine and uh, speaking of being a queer woman, um, when I was very young, Michelle Rodriguez was Mm. probably like one of my first like crushes on a woman that I was aware Mm -hmm. of. And so it's like, it's really funny having like Chris Pine, who I've loved like since my young adulthood and like Michelle Rodriguez, like in the same movie, I'm like, oh, the universe has given me this gift and I really appreciate it. (laughs) So I was like, when I found out about this movie, I'm like, yes, I will go see this movie, even if I know very little about Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and I'm, as Sarah mentioned, I used to be co-host of the podcast way back in the early days. I also have zero qualifications to talk about medieval set movies, but I do like when people stab each other in the face. And if I get to watch movies where people stab each other in the face, I'm going to be a happy little man. Um, And yeah, I don't know if I can say Michelle Rodriguez was one of my first crushes, but I think she's foxy. And, um, and Chris Pine, it, despite the fact that I am not a queer man, Chris Pine... Pretty damn pretty. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's... He's very pretty. As is Michelle Michelle Rodriguez is gorgeous. I I can't say she was one of my first crushes because I am pretty sure I did not know who she was until I watched the Fast and Furious (laughs) movies, which I did, like, several years ago. So... We watched watched those together, Sarah. We did. (laughs) I had a misspent youth watching Resident Evil and other other things. She's really good in Resident Evil. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, that was Fast and Furious is my like discovery of Michelle Rodriguez. So, so yes, we're talking today about Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, uh, the 2023 film still in theaters. I, this like might be the first time Media Evil's actually covered something <laughs> like that is currently in theaters. What, you didn't rush out and go see last year's medi- Medieval in theaters that you just You know, I didn't. I was like, you know, I, I think I'm good. And then I saw it and I was like, no, I was definitely good. I'm really glad I didn't like pay to go to a movie theater for this. So I know I said this last week, but I forgot that that was a movie. And then I saw it come up in my feed. I was like, oh, right, that happened. <laughs> yeah, like, you didn't miss much. <laughs> you really didn't miss much. It, I haven't watched it, Sarah, and usually I watch them before I listen to the, your episodes, but I have no interest. And then listening to the episode, I was never so happy to have not watched something. 
Um, the only thing that comes close is I still haven't seen Catherine called Birdie. And I was so I, disappointed by Catherine called. Well, I don't know. Maybe I wasn't. Dis- okay. I had. <laughs> okay. I, I, well, I was disappointed in the sense that I didn't think it was good. I'm not sure that disappointment is the right word. And that I think I was always actually fairly apprehensive about whether I was going to like Lena Dunham's take on Catherine called Birdie. But so, yeah. So today we are talking about. 2023 film Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves starring as we've already touched on Chris Pine and Michelle Rodriguez uh, who are both excellent in general and in this film uh, also starring uh, Justice Smith who is uh, Simon who is uh, apparently in the Jurassic World movies or some of them <laughs> I have not seen them because I saw the first of the new Jurassic World movies and thought it was misogynist trash and then I didn't see the rest of them <laughs> He was also in Detective Pikachu and was very good in that movie. Well, he's very in that movie. (laughs) That's true. But But like all Ryan Reynolds movies, the rest of the people are just window dressing for for him to (laughs) deadpool it up. In this case, he's deadpooling it while playing an electrified yellow mouse creature. (laughs) By the way, that sounds like I hate it. I I really like Detective Pikachu. I thought it was delightful. (laughs) I really have not seen Detective Pikachu. I think uh, you'd like it. Also, Sophia Lillis as Doric, and she plays Beverly Marsh in the It movies, and I thought it was good. I have mixed feelings about those movies, but I thought she did a good job. I thought the first one was really yeah. good, and I did not like the second one. Yeah, my experience with the It movies is that around the time it came out, um, there was also a period of uh, chapter one came out. There's also a period piece called Tulip Fever, which is um, about the 16th century um, tulip craze in Amsterdam. And uh, because my mother loves me and being my mother is not easy, I asked her to take me to this movie. And we are like the only two people sitting in this theater and a middle-aged man walks in before the movie starts and says, I don't even know what this movie is about, but I'm not seeing it. And he just pops down in like the front <laughs> row of the theater. <laughs> so, that is the closest I have come to ever seeing the It movies is that this gentleman who did not want to go see It went to see Tulip was, Fever. Was it good, Tulip Fever? <laughs> I, Tulip Fever was better than I expected it would be. Okay. It's um Alicia Vikander, uh, Christoph Waltz, um, a few other people who I don't remember right now, but it was interesting. <laughs> is that like... Is the point of that actually that they're just like, we think the tulip, cra- that like the like tulip craze in the Netherlands should be a movie? Basically, I think it was also like um, some commentary on like gender roles and like the kind of things that like you would expect a period piece to like be talking about sort of like, I don't remember it being like one of these like modern feminist in, you know, like ancient times, like kind of not ancient, but you know what I mean, but like one of those, but it was, um, it was interesting. The writer of the novel had also written like best exotic marigolds, those kinds of things. So yeah, I, I it, it's been a little while, so I don't really remember too much about it, but it was like one of those pretty costumes, you know, yeah. kinds of movies. Yeah. No, I saw the first It movie because my then girlfriend was into Stephen King and um, I don't think I saw it in theaters. I think I saw it like after, but I watched it with her and then I watched the second on a plane and I thought it was very bad. 
So moving on, we also have Hugh Grant as Forge Fitzwilliam. And I am so happy about the fact that Hugh Grant at this stage of his career has just like taken a villain turn. I'm like really here for it. Yeah. For anyone who has not seen Paddington 2, that movie is incredible. <laughs> I have not, but like, I feel like that's like, I like was like reading about it and I was like, I need to watch this movie. Yeah, it's, he is fantastic in that movie. <laughs> Also great in uh, Not a Villain Turn, but Florence Foster Jenkins is a really good, like, late-stage Hugh Grant performance that I really like. <laughs> late-stage Hugh Grant. I feel like we're just, like, at, like sentencing him to death on this podcast. <laughs> like, in the latter sorry, days of his life of 2020. <laughs> we also have Roger Jean Page as Zenk Yendar, who is uh, apparently, I would say, it seemed, like, mostly known for season one of Bridgerton, which I have not seen. <laughs> Yeah, he is very good. I cannot really recommend the show as there is a lot of like dubious sexual consent going on that. that I am not crazy about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I have also never seen uh, Bridgerton. I know that he is apparently in the running to be the next James Bond. And uh, yeah, yes. I think he's okay. great. I, I'd that. be okay. I'd be on board with this. Um, yeah. A younger, fitter, healthier, happier looking James Bond. I'm all good with this. Not just for the record, not that um, Daniel Craig is not healthy. Um, I just meant he looks like he hates the fucking thing. He does look like he hates being James Bond. Yes. So, Sarah, who else was in the movie? Uh, Chloe Coleman as Kira Darvis. Um, so I have not seen her in anything, and she's in you know, and she's young. But I find it delightful that later in this year she is going to be uh, starring in a movie alongside Chris Evans. So I'm just going to assume that she is beginning her career by like doing a like gotta catch them all and collect all the Chris's. <laughs> just checking all yeah. of them off. One yeah, man, <laughs> I would love to collect all the Chris's except for Pratt. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Fuck I him. hope she does that. I hope she does like. I hope like then she does a movie with Chris Hemsworth, and then she's like, no, I'm good. <laughs> Also, uh, Sophina, the evil wizard, is played by Daisy Head. And again, never seen her in anything. But uh, Giles from Buffy is her dad. And I literally shrieked when I saw that and was very excited. <laughs> yeah, I um, I hadn't seen her in anything either. But my mom also wondered if it was Elizabeth Olsen, which I was like, you know, to be fair, there's also been another movie with a, cra- with a woman going crazy with her witch powers in the past year. So I could understand thinking that they're the same person. And also, I think a lot of eyeliner. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, basically the same. And wearing red. So it <laughs> makes perfect <Yeah>. sense. <laughs> fair mistake. <laughs> she is kind of the Scarlet Witch. Yeah. <laughs> so... Last of the cast, uh, Bradley Cooper shows up briefly as Marloman, uh, who is um, Holga's halfling ex-husband. And we also have the uh, the corpse voices are provided by a comedy troupe called Auntie Donna, which uh, I have heard of because specifically they like have done had they like been on uh, the podcast Comedy Bang Bang a couple of times and were really fun. So they have a Netflix show called Auntie Donna's Big Old House of Fun. And it's brilliant. Auntie Donna are fantastic. So yeah, so with that, I think we can get into the first section where we go over the plot of the film, which is called... <coughs> Enumeratio. Did your voice break in the middle? No, it didn't. It didn't, Sarah. It's been... I'm just a big manly voice. Don't worry about it. <laughs> what happened in the movie? What do you think the story was, Sarah? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, 
So we start with meeting uh, our two central characters, uh, Edgen Darvis, who is uh, belongs to this group called the Harpers, this like peacekeeping order, and he and his uh, friend Holga, who is a barbarian, apparently, in terms of her <laughs> class, I, I guess, for d and I know a lot about D&D. Um, then the two of them are in prison. Uh, the, like, first, I would, like, meeting that we get with them is we've got this, like, orc guy who comes in and is, like, mm-hmm. creepy and threatening, and, uh, Halga destroys his legs. <laughs> I, from the very beginning, when the first thing we see of, um, Edgar and Chris Pine is that he's mm-hmm. knitting, I was like, this movie and I are on the same way. I know, I love that he's knitting. It's really sweet. Um, and the wo- the woman is the one where he, <laughs> the guy is going to go for, like, her potato. And Chris Pine is like, you do not want to get between Holga and her, like, potato. It's, it's like the one joy of her day. And she just beats the shit out of him for trying to take her food. And I was like, yes, I like this movie. As, as somebody who once got extremely angry at somebody for trying to take one of my mozzarellas, sticks i find this very relatable um although i do have to note that for some reason fantasy seems very invested in potatoes despite the fact that potatoes were not in fact a thing in medieval europe potatoes have always been a thing sarah they are everlasting and uh as an irish person obviously just for anybody listening i'm irish i I don't know how you would have missed that since the beginning of of the podcast every time i open my mouth um i identify with holga uh great don't get between me and my spuds guys (laughs) It's not going to end well for you. I will go for your knees. And that's about as high as I can reach for most people. So let's go. So the two of them are up for their pardon appeal. And so they go before this council. Uh, Edgen keeps asking basically where is this particular counselor? Because he thinks that counselor will be uh, very, very helpful for them. Uh, who is named Jarnathan, which I find hilarious. Uh, and feels very also like the D&D dungeon master has like kind of forgotten to name a character. And so they're like, <laughs> okay, we're going to like take this like regular name and change like two syllables and make it fantasy. Speaking as a, as a writer who struggles to think of names offhand and will frequently like reach for the nearest book and be like, what is this person's name? And then just like mash them together. Uh-huh. I understand that. Impulse. Jonathan. <laughs> and I really liked was that Chris Pine is saying that oh, he's he's related to the Harpers. I'm a Harper. Jonathan was a Harper. He will understand. And when I tell him my story, he'll get it. And I was thinking, yeah, so... They're basically just waiting to have somebody who is uh, biased in their favor on the jury. Um, (laughs) But that's not why he's waiting for Jonathan at all, which is brilliant. Yeah, Um, which which I thought was like a very fun uh, reveal. I really appreciate that because I was totally just expecting it to be like the standard, like what you would think it would be. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, I thought that was very fun. Um, But we'll get to that reveal in a moment. Yeah. So, but we get at this point his backstory, uh, which is that, so he had been a Harper and, uh, you know, was like all excited about doing this. The Harpers are basically like spies, kind of peacekeepers. It seems like, you know, they, they sort of like have a number of like skills, but that the skills are more like planning and stealth rather than like fighting necessarily per se. Yeah. 
And the thing that sticks in his craw is that it's meant to be very, like, altruistic, like, giving to the people and taking nothing in return, which becomes a problem because he can't really give his family the life that he feels they deserve in terms of money. And, you know, and he's like, that's part of, like, the motivation for him. Right. Uh, And then the fact also that so one of the things that he did as a Harper was that he brought to justice some of these evil red wizards, which we'll talk about more later. And one of these evil red wizards or a group of these evil red wizards then went to his house and killed his wife, which we'll talk about that for a second. (laughs) Um, yeah. <laughs> I, haven't we gotten to the point in this, the year 2023, where all screenwriters, like, know the term fridging and know that it's, like, kind of a shitty trope and yeah. therefore could maybe not do it? <laughs> I, it's so bizarre to me. It, like, I don't write screenplays. Um, I'm, I'm probably never going to write a screenplay. As a, as Even as somebody who's tried to write a short story or two why why fridging is still around as the main mm-hmm. motivation cast but also why people accept it like sarah we did episodes uh or an episode on the wheel of time tv show and we also did episodes an episode on um the lord of the rings tv show both of them feature motivations for their main characters which are legitimate fridgings and no series come out in 2021, 2022. And if you talk to fans of those shows, they will defend the fridging. Like, so Perrin's yeah. wife is fridged and Perrin who doesn't have a wife in the book. So they added a wife. They invent just, a character literally just to murder her. Just to murder her. <laughs> and then say, and then, but the fans will say. Like in episode one. In episode one. So if you yeah. haven't seen it, Tracy, literally a character who does not have a wife in the books at the beginning is given a wife so he can kill her by accident so that it motivates him to hate violence, right? Now, in the actual book series, he um, he has a connection with wolves. He sees a wolf getting killed. He actually goes feral and kills some men and then regrets it for the rest of the book series as that, uh, that's me losing myself, losing my humanity, and the violence comes out. Violence is bad. I hate violence. But these people are saying, oh, no, that's fine. Like... Nobody would care about that. You can't just be sad that you killed some men. Oh my god! You, like you, you have need to, to murder your wife, okay? Yeah, because women are helpless. Yeah, it's um, it's a trope that I personally really struggle with. Um, Gail Simone is the one that popularized the term mm-hmm. fridging. Um, she's actually the reason that um, I follow her on a lot of social media. She's the reason I started like reading comics mm-hmm. because um. They gave her the chance to sort of reverse one of the most famous fridgings, which is um, when Barbara Gordon, Batgirl, is shot in the spine by the Joker and very presumably sexually assaulted, though that's kind of left to, like, the imagination. And it's just, like, one of the most, like, horrible things that's ever been done in comics. And there's a lot of controversy on how, like, the, the paralysis and everything was reversed, but it was, like, you know, something that she was able to, like, sort of walk back a little bit and, like, hearing about that was so fascinating to me and I was like and I really respect the work that she does Mm -hmm. but um I also have lost a parent I lost Mm -hmm. a parent when I was very young and um to part the curtain a little bit I saw this movie on an anniversary like related to that Mm -hmm. loss and so it was like something like it's a trope that I'm very tired of as someone that has lost Mm -hmm. a parent and then you see like has watched a parent go through that grief and then been the child that has had a parent die 
And just like, it, it's a trope that just happens over and over. I remember that one particular pilot season on TV, I watched about five new shows and there were four dead wives and one character who like was the doppelganger of like someone's wife that died and it was like you know meant to like motivate him and everything and i was just like so mad that i spent like two mornings watching new shows and i'm like why have all of you had like dead wives in your (laughs) premise i'm like we need to move past and it's so lazy right i mean it's like we've done done this a million times uh it you know very much also feels like so you know we have to like you know and there is obviously you know all i mentioned right the kind of like gender swapping of this in the lord of the rings series but it is Mm -hmm. almost always when you have this it's specifically a woman you know usually a wife sometimes like a daughter or whatever um and it very much also feels like right it's kind of trucking in this like well it has to be a woman because like women are innocent and women are helpless and so like a woman being dead therefore is like a a better motivation and b like well she would be useless if she was there so like you know she might as well just be dead And for a movie that otherwise flips the genders very well by having Holga be the barbarian and Edgen specifically, like, there's literally, like, a whole part in this movie where he's like, I sit and I make plans. And he's like, I'm going to sit on this rock and come up with another plan. And, like, he does almost no fighting. Like, his biggest contribution to the movie is planning and singing. And whenever he does fight, he's very clearly, like, not as good at it as Helga is. he's just, like, flailing around and, like, doing whatever he can. So, like, for a movie that was so conscious of gender in Mm -hmm. that way to rely on fridging to set up the plot, I was like, you could have been a little bit smarter. Also because, like, part of the plot, which we'll get to, I'm sure, is that his daughter is in peril. Right. And it was, like, so it was just, like, they half got there, but they could have done better in general and that's like the one thing that like bothers me a little bit yeah and it's also like I feel like it would have been like more interesting to do something else like I mean I you know I guess then it's like complicated because then it would have been sort of the same dynamic as Helga and Marlowin so maybe they would have had to adjust that but like I don't know if she'd like if he has to have a wife like I don't know maybe she like left him because he kind of sucked like that also could have been like a motivation which at least would have been somewhat different yeah, I was just going to say about um, about Kira, that's his daughter. Uh, what I appreciated about her is that she's pretty much not in peril. Like, she yeah. she's away from him, but... She, she's yeah. young, and she's, like, not entirely aware of her situation, which is, like, a little yeah. different than, like, the standard, like, damsel in distress. To, because Forge is... Um, Forge is acting as her surrogate dad and has risen to be the leader of Neverwinter, the biggest city and therefore the like the capital of the world, effectively. Um she's effectively the princess of the land. And oh, yeah, she's, and she's having a great well. time. She's doing pretty well. Like so Chris Pine showing up, and obviously we're behind Chris Pine's character because he's trying to get his daughter back, and we know that uh Forge is a scumbag, but she's inarguably in a better place uh mm-hmm. when he shows up from prison than she he was or she was before because they were living in a little hovel and yes i get it you know the importance of the um the family unit and all but she's doing quite well so that that's what i appreciate there is that uh, there are points where chris yeah. pine and holga actually have to have that that thought process of is she better off where she is like I think that they did do, like, a really good job with allowing her to have her feelings about how she had been abandoned. Mm -hmm. 
because you like you get a lot of films that like aren't really interested in exploring the emotional consequences where like you just have that forgiveness but like it explores the fact that she was very young when they went away and they've been gone for two years and those are two years that they're never going to get back yeah and you know and like she really feels like it takes her almost the whole movie to really come around and be like we can't undo this, but at least, like, there is a way for us to go forward. And I think that they did, like, especially for a young girl where a lot of teenage girls on film, their feelings get dismissed mm-hmm. or, you know, played as, like, them being dramatic. I give a lot of credit to this film for not doing that. Yeah, that even if ultimately she, you know, she has been manipulated in the sense, right, that Forge is not the person that he says he is, that ultimately there is, like, in a way in which her feelings are still, like, given credit as being like as being valid and so I really like that and I really did also like that while there is the daughter in peril aspect toward the end for a lot of it it's really more about I have to persuade my daughter that I'm not a piece of shit than I have rather than I have to rescue my daughter yeah yeah but back to where we were in the movie because we've just jumped all over the place the movie starts (laughs) with I what so we're all aware of the trope of uh, oh, you're wondering how I got here. And this is basically what they're doing here, but they're just doing it in a really clever and interesting and funny way, which is Chris Pine explaining to a parole board why he thinks he should be released and effectively he's explaining the situation of how he ended up in prison in the first place. And rather than just have like a freeze frame of him like jumping through going, oh, that's me. um, (laughs) It's him telling this story. And the story is very convincing. He wants to get out to go and look after his daughter because he he like he's the, the greatest crime he's committed is having her live without a father for the last two years, and he wants to go back and do it. And he he's he I said he's a bard like that's meant to be his skill. Yeah, he is mm-hmm. at very good at convincing people to do it. Olga or Holga doesn't say anything. She just kind of sits there and goes, huh? You got, <laughs> right. You got she's this like kind of like slouching in the back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And there is, and it's also, so, you know, and he, as part of the story, right, also kind of emphasizes the fact that, like, you know, I only was led to this life of crime by, you know, wanting to, you know, do what was best for my daughter after I lost my wife. And also that the real reason, ultimately, that I committed this particular crime, which is the one that he got caught for, is that he was trying to steal an object called a Tablet of Reawakening, which the point of which was that it was going to be able to resurrect said dead wife dead wife and exactly the two yeah. of them got captured and the others got away yeah in some sort of time trap that was done by the the yeah. sofina who was helping them forge had enlisted her as this powerful wizard and she's using this use this time trap to it's meant to allow them to escape but it ends up capturing themselves right and they get stuck in with the with the mm-hmm. rest of the soldiers but they finished telling her story and it's about to be announced whether or not they are going to get parole or get parole rejected. And just at that point, that's when Jonathan shows up. And Chris Pine assumes... Now, Jonathan is a Aracocra, I think he is, which is a bird person. And he is a giant crow-looking man. And um, Chris Pine assumes that they're going to get rejected. So himself and Olga knock out a guard, run over, grab Jonathan, and just jump out a window with him. But also I love how they do it is that they like he gets in and they're like Jonathan and like run over and like give him a giant hug and then like push him out the window. And they just assume (laughs) that a giant bird man is going to fly and 
it gets very close. Like, obviously, they're going to survive. It's two minutes into the movie. They're not going to die at the beginning. It would be some very short movie. <laughs> like, we're talking about knocking tropes on their head. Two minutes to finish up and go, they died. Get out. <laughs> um, but he flies just about, kind of glides a little bit, gets them out of the prison. And then we cut back to the parole board who are like, but we approved! Which is also <laughs> a very good joke. Which then... I, I felt like um, it was sort of like, a, to me, like a funny, like, sort of tweak of, um, I know it's something that people always say about Lord of the Rings is that, like, they have the eagles in the end that can, like, fly them out of Mordor. And it's like, why could the eagles not fly them into Mordor? And it's like, this was kind of like a nice, like, they expect him to be able to, like, fly them out. It's like, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think it's sort of important to mention, um, because it is such a factor in the plot going forward, that um, when Edgen tells the story of... Um, what happened with his wife he also mentions that um holga and him met in a bar when he was basically just drinking his life away with his like baby infant daughter by his side and she took pity on him specifically because she took pity on the baby yeah and was like like you can't be doing this and so they form like a platonic like co-parenting pair where um she has like a really great relationship with kira she calls her bug she's like very affectionate and so it's like it's not just like him wanting to get back to his daughter it's also like these people are her family like because she left her husband mm -hmm. and you know like and it very easily could have gone into romantic territory and i was really just expecting it to go into romantic territory but one of the things i really liked best about this movie is that that, that relationship is allowed to stay platonic yeah. and that they were even like co-parents without it having to be romantic yeah. because that's not a dynamic that you see a lot of in like mainstream like fictional properties yeah i really liked that i also really liked that so you know as we as we kind of touched on already right so holga is the barbarian she's very much like this stoic fighter and I think it's also pretty rare that women are allowed to be that kind of stoic fighter and also parent and have love yeah. for and have love and affection for a kid. And so I really also... Especially a kid that, like, isn't related to them yeah. in that sense. Like, that's, like, really rare. Yeah, and so I really liked that, that it felt, you know, that, like, without it being, you know, like, some dumb maternal instincts trope... Um, yeah. that it, like, felt like it was, like, a, you know, a nuance to her character, right? That she can just, like, be both of those things and neither detracts from the other. Like, the fact that she, like, has this, like, parental love for this child doesn't, like, mean that she can't also do these other things. Um, mm -hmm. the fact that, like, she's, like, kind of often, like, stoic and badass and aggressive doesn't mean that she, like, can't, like, feel love or care for a kid. So, I like that. So they escape and they go to Neverwinter, where they learn that one of their uh, previous compatriots, Forge, Hugh Grant, is now lord there since the previous lord fell ill under mysterious circumstances. And mysterious that... circumstances always means he was poisoned. Like every it single always time. always means was, he was, po I mean, or, was poisoned. I mean, or magic, right? Poison magic. or magic is yeah. happening here. Yeah, they, every like, time. They every might time. as well say, uh, since that... A new advisor, Grima Wormtongue, showed up. Things have been going a little bit shitty for the old, the old leader of Neverwinter. <laughs> and uh, that he now Forge's main advisor is Sophina, so the you know wizard, the powerful wizard from before, and that the two of them are well. I mean, Forge mostly, I guess. Uh, Sophina doesn't seem like she has a lot of like parent, like parenting uh, <laughs> that she's doing. I guess. 
Um, she just never talks. No, she really doesn't. But I mean, you know, in, in like a cool way. And I will say like, I mean, you know, spoiler alert, right? She's going to be our, the two of them are basically our villains. And she's like the villain who is more of the like competent villain in terms yeah. of like being somebody who it's actually like really like dangerous and scary to fight against. Um, yeah, she, and I also she's the really one with the plan, like that. which is again, and the one with the plan. Yeah. It's again, subverting the trope of, um, like who's the power behind the throne? Mm-hmm. It's not Jafar. It's Safina, yeah. and Safina is effectively Jafaring this entire situation. She's propped him up. She's given him the power. She allowed him to get the money. He is the face of the company because again, he's a rogue. He's good at lying and stuff. That's again his main skill. So he's able to do these things, and then she's able to because as a red wizard or just a wizard in general she would be disliked and distrusted by people. So she's there as his advisor and he's the one who's the face of the, you know, effectively the face of the company. Just think, think I was just thinking about them. Um, Wonder Woman 1984. Um, He's, he's basically Pedro Pascal in that. That's what he's there for. Yeah. You know, things are good. Could be better. And that's effectively what he's saying all the time. And that's why he's bringing back the games. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was, the one other thing that I was, did want to say about Safina is also that like, I do find it interesting that like, I think this is also a role that women don't get to play very often in that mm-hmm. there aren't that many women villains whose villainy isn't in some ways like tied to like some like stereotypically feminine motive, right? That they like. Yeah. She also really wasn't sexualized no. because she's literally in like this like drape like straight down like not form-fitting at all clothing like the entire movie yeah and that's and like i'm used to just like female villain the hero breasts yes like, you know please, that's, like, please look I'm upon her to. breasts uh, yes. <laughs> yeah like she's not sexualized at all in terms of her clothing she also like is uh is bald which is uh, you know like yeah. her, her head is shaven which is like not you know also like stereotypically considered to be sexy for women oh for um, women sorry just as a bald man <laughs> i was feeling a little bit cold right there <laughs> They, like, you know, like, the stereotype of feminine beauty is, like, you know, long, flowing hair, and, like, she does not have that. She also had um one of my favorite comedy moments in the film. My mom and I saw this movie, and we have, like, a track record of, like, being in, like, comedy films, and, like, we'll be some of the only people laughing, and we're like, is it, like, just us? Like, you know, that there's, like, people that have, like, no sense of humor, and um <laughs> Hugh Grant has very hot tea, and asks her if she can cool it down, and she, like makes her finger like icy and then just like straight up puts her finger in the tea and he's like i didn't know that you were just going like put your finger in there and then he's like, have I'll, I'll have this later <laughs> no i thought that was that was like a great comedy moment i saw this in a theater where like i think there were six people in the theater maybe it might have been fewer oh, i wish there were more um but yeah so edgen and holga show up um, Forge brings him in and he's out really nice they meet Kira again she's obviously a little bit angry that her two parental figures in particular her dad she knows that Holga was just going with her dad and hadn't really been on board with the crime in the first place Um, and she realises that uh, or she's, she's definitely testy and angry towards them to go in to meet Forge and when Edgin is explaining that oh I was trying to bring your mother back Kira's like no you wanted to get uh, instead of a trinket of resurrection or reawakening, you wanted a trinket of infinite wealth. That's what I was told it was, or a tablet of infinite wealth. Um, and it turns out that Forge has been lying to her. 
Um, she runs off and then Forge just basically reveals that, you know, he's in charge now and he has no interest in Edgin and Holga being around. So he's effectively banishing them. And then Safina, again, showing off that she's the real power behind the throne, instructs to her men that they should kill them as soon as they get them out of the city or out of the, the castle and they get led away and then they escape. Yeah, something I also deeply appreciate about this movie which again is a super low bar is that forge in a twisted way values his relationship with kira because he says that to him being a parent is like being a god where he's like you can like mold like your relationship with this person and like mold them in your image but because i have seen so many of these fucking movies i sort of really expected it to be a situation where like he was waiting for her to like come of age and then like want her as his bride or something. Gross. And I was like so ready for it to become like creepily sexual and then it wasn't. And I was like, thank fucking God, because I could not have done that in this movie. Yeah, Kira also, I will say for this, you know, as, again, low bar, but yeah, Kira also, I feel like is never ever at all sexualized in this movie, which no, like no. is like should yeah. be the standard for like a, you know, teenage girl, but is, you know, not the standard for a teenage girl. So, yeah. And considering, like, we were talking off mic about The Last of Us and, like, you know, Bella Ramsey, who is 19, playing, like, a Mm 14-year-old, and there's, like, all these, like, dickbags online that are like, she's not attractive enough, and it's like, why are you? She's meant to be 14. She's meant to be 14 years old. Yeah. And I think the actress actually might be, I think the actress who plays Kira, I'm not not entirely sure how old Kira as a character is supposed to be, but I think the actress is actually is pretty young. I think she's, like, 15 or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and I think as anything is maybe playing a couple of years younger. So yeah. I was putting her at about 11. Like, yeah. That, it just yeah. vaguely. Sounds it, right. Like, it's a, um, yeah. That's a very good point. I, I, it never had occurred to me, but again, as maybe as a parent, like you're hoping that you're avoiding that, but that does become a big trope in a lot of these things, which is the bad guy is, Oh, I'm raising this child or looking after this child. I'm going to marry off this child later on yeah i think i'm thinking of like a jasmine and jafar yeah. like, kind of thing that like i was just like expecting it to go that way and like i was really glad when it didn't yeah yeah and i feel like that is a that is a pretty common trope i mean and also is is actually something that like happened that like you know in yeah well in medieval context i was going to say that like people like did end up like marrying their wards um mm-hmm. You know, for money, typically, but you know, who knows what else? Uh, and I guess also we have like modern examples of people who are like, you know, say step parents who are sleeping with their stepkids. Yeah. yeah, or you know, uh, adoptive fathers who married their adoptive kids and then still directed movies and people work with them. But that's beside the point. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they escape from getting attacked and basically Holga does all of the work beats the crap out of people um I think one of the only bits of violence that is actually done by um Chris Pine in the entire movie is he hits somebody with his loot um which is very funny to knock out the last guy and I really loved um I loved how Holga managed to stall the person long enough for her to be able to beat the shit out of them is that she's asking how he cleans yes yes Yeah, and she does take the axe, um, because, you know, apparently it's a pretty good axe. I also like that, like, they keep having, you know, they show all the shots of Holga, you know, kicking everybody's ass, and then they, like, shoot back to Chris Pine, and Chris Pine is still, for, like, 90% of the scene, is just still, like, 
rubbing the like ropes tying his wrist against like a like <laughs> rusty sword somewhere and trying to actually even free himself so like he is like he can't even do yeah that. exactly like he like not only is he like not super helping with the actual fighting he's like he hasn't even managed to like get himself free <laughs> and it's kind of it's kind of refreshing um speaking as someone who's seen a lot of chris pine's movies which is why i'm here um, you know, after seeing him in things like Star Trek, where, like, he is expected to be, like, the action hero who's, like, doing the punching and, you know, all the physical work, like, I bet it was really nice for him, too, to, like, not have to do that this time. And sort of, like, he's a great comedic actor. Yeah. And I think that this movie was, like, the perfect thing for him to, like, do that, like, using his, like, action star, like, status, but also, like, being able to, like, step aside and let other people do that work. Yeah, and it's, it just brings up something that I... I was saying to you guys beforehand um and not to spoil uh my overall thoughts on the movie but i loved it i thought it was brilliant um i really appreciated that the writers the directors and everybody in it clearly enjoy the making the movie like nobody is it maybe hugh grant yeah. a little bit nobody seems embarrassed to be there and even Hugh Grant, I actually feel like is kind of hamming it up and have a good and having a good time like i don't know there was so there was this like stupid like thing before the when i saw the movie they had this stupid like at amc yeah at amc the like you're yeah. the real heroes for going to the movies <laughs> uh and the guy sitting yeah. next to you is like you're the heroes <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think um from what i understand in england in particular i've heard that they have a very different attitude mm-hmm. towards like genre movie because like to them, any job is a job, yeah. and, like, it is how you get paid, yeah. and, like, you, like, this might be, like, the last thing that you ever do. Like, that's why, like, mm-hmm. Sir, like Sir Anthony Hopkins has been in a lot of crap, yeah. and, like, I hear that that's kind of why, is that, like, it is a paycheck to them. Yeah. And, like, that's how, like, especially, like, in a culture like theirs where, like, acting is, like, very revered, mm-hmm. it's, like, they also don't really look down on this stuff in the same way. And I think that that's, like, a really interesting part of it, too, is, like, I'm sure that to him, he's, like, it's money. Like, you yeah. know, it's, like, it's what I need yeah, to Yeah, so I thought he seemed, so. I was just gonna say, I thought Hugh Grant seemed, like, slightly embarrassed doing the PSA, but I thought mm. he, like, actually yeah. seemed 100% on board for the movie. And also, like, can British people be embarrassed? Can, like, great British actors actually be embarrassed about, like, the <laughs> movies that they're in when, like, Judy Dench and Ian McKellen are in Cats? Like, I mean. <laughs> That's true. Um, and you, yeah, and you have, like, Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen in, like, X-Men during my childhood just like doing the absolute like craziest yeah. shit on- and, like, i think they're both having a great fucking time sarah forced yeah. me to do dungeon siege and uh jeremy irons who was in the original <laughs> dungeons and dragons movie was in dungeon siege and he, the famous quote about what do you remember about doing dungeon siege is um and he he always says i just bought a castle some <laughs> i had to make the repayment somehow and that's 100 percent true it's like I had just bought a castle. I needed to repay <laughs> the mortgage, so I did the Dungeon Siege movie with Jason Statham, which is a, a fun. It's a fun I, time. It's a bad movie. But the, it's a fun time. It's a fun episode. They say the same thing about um Michael Caine. Like they asked him about like the Jaws movie that he did. He's like, yes, it bought me a lovely yeah. house. Yeah. Like you know, it's like this is how they look at the Jaws for the revenge. <laughs> Shocking movie, but yeah. So what I, what I was getting across there is that the writers are not taking the piss out of Dungeons and Dragons and are not taking out of the piss out of the people who enjoy Dungeons and Dragons. It yeah. feels like there's a certain amount of reverence to it. And that means that rather than getting big belly laughs, let's laugh. Oh, these people have crass humor, so let's make crass jokes. These people have are the lowest common denominator. Let's make lowest common denominator jokes. 
the writing is yeah. witty and mm-hmm. dry and wry. And again, as somebody who's not a huge comedy fan in in general, I was sitting watching. I was I was getting a chuckle, getting a huh. And I, I, I nodded my head. I was I was watching it with a friend, and like he was chuckling away, and I was laughing at, at various points, but never any of these big like <laughs> moments yeah. because it's not going for that. Because when you go for that, those kind of big belly laughs and everybody in the in the cinema laughing, your movie then has to become a comedy comedy. It's not an yeah. action comedy, and for in order for it to stay in true to Dungeons and Dragons, which is meant to be an entirely creative endeavor where you could do anything you want in it. Mm-hmm. It has to have this wry and subtle humor. The action scenes can't be massively huge and amazing. So it, it kind of just strikes that perfect balance for me. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those scenes where the action, the fight scenes are well choreographed and well done. And at the same time you have, you know, the man character lying on his face, trying to cut a rope on the edge of a stone. It's not even a sword he's using. He's using the edge of a step, trying to create enough friction to cut the rope like and it's again it's such a well done scene and then the next scene that leads to them is that the two of them decide look we're gonna have to go steal kira um holgan wants to just run at them and try and kill all the guards and elgin's like uh maybe we should go get a crew together so they go looking for simon played by um justice smith and he is doing carnival tricks in a small town and trying to steal the the people who are watching and again another funny scene played for laughs but also subtle laughs they're not looking like at no point is like i'm just thinking of the original dungeons and dragons movie i watched it again recently before this came out like there's a scene where like one of the wayne's brothers is in it marlon wayne's and he's just constantly just going whoa like these huge big massive reactions to everything that's happening whereas in this chris pine gets thrown around upside down because justice smith is changing the gravity and it's just every time he lands he's just like oof but it's enough to get it's enough to get a laugh out of me yeah and i will say like there you know and also this is very much like that kind of dry humor is very much my kind of humor and there are definitely some like bits Mm -hmm. where i cracked up but also that i was like still very like engrossed in the action that was going on as well like even when like like, even when there was a lot of humor and where, like, I was, like, genuinely, like, very much laughing. Um, I also, um, like, what Ollie was saying about, like, not, like, making fun of, like, the people who enjoy this. Like, that's, like, so important to me because, um, I I mentioned before, um, uh, I, I don't think on mic that I'm a Jane Austen fan. And, um, there was a movie a number of years ago called Austen Land, which is adapting a novel by Shannon Hale. And, um... The book was really great about, like, it's about, like, a Jane Austen fan that's given this inheritance from her uh, late, like, relative that lets her go to this, like, immersive, like, Jane Austen theme park where you can sort of have, like, the Jane Austen style, like, relationship. And it's, like, in the book, like, she's interested in Jane Austen, like, and she's kind of, like, ashamed of it. And the idea of, like, her relative is, like, you can sort of, like, integrate this in part of your life. And it's, like, she has this DVD of the Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice that she's, like, hiding under a houseplant. And, like, the very end of the book is, like, she accepts that, like, this is something that she can, like, own being interested in. Mm -hmm. And she, like, places the DVD, like, on her shelf. And so the movie starring Carrie Russell, like, 
totally blows her being an Austin fan, like, out of proportion. Like, her apartment is just, like, covered in Austin crap. Like, she has, like, a cardboard, like, cutout of Colin Firth that she's, like, kissing at night. And it, like, and there's, like, this one really good moment where, like, she goes to a Jane Austen, like, seminar and then, like, sees that she's not, like, the only person that likes Jane Austen. And you see, like, her face sort of fall because, like, it's not this thing that's unique to her. But, like, there's that. And then, like, the rest of the movie is really just, like, punching down at, Mm -hmm. like, how ridiculous these women are to be, like, interested in this thing. And as, like, a Jane Austen fan who literally, like, traveled like 40 minutes to like the art cinema near me that was playing it and like paid and sat there and watched this movie like I remember at the end I just felt like sad yeah because I was like I think I just sat in a movie for two hours where like I genuinely felt like I was being made fun of yeah and like as someone who had already like had people in my life like feel that way about like me being interested in Jane Austen like not even to that degree I was like that was like really upsetting yeah and it just like remains like a point of contention I have about these things so Mm -hmm. like a movie that at least understands its audience and like isn't being like oh like they're nerds like for liking this thing like I think that's like better than we give it credit for in a lot of ways yeah yeah. And I also, like, I felt like it was, I, I I really appreciated that. And I also did, like, really feel like the movie was sort of clever in ways that it seemed like it was sort of trying to evoke the experience of playing D&D and some of the things that make D&D yeah. fun without it being like, and actually, at the end, this never really happened. And it was all a D&D game. Like, yeah. I, I mean, even, like, the thing, right, with him, like, you know, with the, like, the, like, trying to, like, get the ropes off. It, like, mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, you know, obviously subverts the kind of, like, traditional action movie, right, where, like, you would want both of your characters to at least, like, basically be, like, in play of the action to some extent for the entire scene, uh, but also then, like, kind of, like, felt like the, like, I don't know, like, he keeps fucking up his dice roll, like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the the telling the ba- the backstory in the beginning where he's like you know doing this like whole like monologue where like you like you know you don't get the chance to do that very often so you're like making the most of mm-hmm. it like that kind of thing yeah like it hints yeah. at like what is fun about like or it seems like it's like hinting right at what's like fun about playing D and D without being like it's certainly without mocking it which is mm-hmm. I think very much appreciated but also I think without going like too hard on the like and this is a game and this isn't real. So they track down Simon, who, yeah, is, uh, and, and the point of Simon, right, is that Simon is just, like, a really mediocre wizard. Uh, <laughs> so, like, the best he can do, right, is this, like, you know, like, parlor tricks, like, shitty magic, where he's, like, you know, like, makes, like, his finger a candle and, like, makes the air, like, right in front of him kind of smell like cut grass for 35 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like... And it's, he makes himself yeah, slightly it's, blurry. It's also occurring to me now that, like, because we're about to mention Doric, who's, like, a really competent, like, shapeshifter and, like, fighter herself, like, it's nice to have a movie where the two women are the really competent ones, and the two men are the ones that are, like, don't really know what they're doing. Yeah, Yeah. I enjoyed that. I really appreciated that. I I hated that. And the only man (laughs) that does know what he's doing is the one who's in the movie for, like, 20 minutes and then leaves. Right, 
<laughs> right. I mean, even like that's also kind of the dynamic, right, with like Forge and Sophina that like, I mean, yeah. or that at theory was like Sophina is a much more significant threat. I mean, Forge is arguably mm-hmm. making more of a contribution than, uh, to, to his side and what than what's happening than uh, either. Yeah, he's totally, he's totally just a patsy. Yeah. Like he's just there to be like the fall guy. Yeah, and he's like, he's clearly yeah. like a competent rogue, but yeah, but he's clearly like yeah. not that smart. He's not like that effective in a lot of ways. Like he's clearly not the one who's really the power there. Yeah. Yeah. So, and just, you, you mentioned dark. Um, so Simon says we should go find this dark. She's a druid, a tiefling druid. So tieflings are, um, so effectively a tiefling is vaguely human, annoyed in shape, but at some point their ancestors made a deal with the devil and there's lasting effects so that they can be born. And this girl has horns and she's got a tail, right? Now, um, for the listeners, there's something going to be cut out right now. Every time I've ever seen a, a tiefling drawn before uh, or represented before, it's always been very sexualized beings, right? In particular, a character. And Doric, who is uh, a young woman, the same age as Justice Smith in, in the show or in the movie, is not. At no point are there any lingering butt shots or heavy cleavage shots. And the fact that she is the younger, sexier, I've just done some quotes, uh, air quotes thing there, character. And yet at no point does this movie linger on anything. Treats her with the exact same respect that every other character has been treated for. She gets the same number of lines. She gets the same number of points where she is hyper competent. And she also has the same number of points where she makes mistakes. So she's not treated as some sort of perfect character but she's very very competent and that's what i like about this It's another one of those things where you can tell that the people who did this have gone out of their way to make sure that they're not uh hitting the 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 lowest common denominator oh my god let's make this a sexy character and the other part and again like the the bar is so low but like it's like especially when she's like still a young woman Mm -hmm. like he especially having heard like so many young actresses and like the terrible experiences they have yeah. on movies like this like it's really great to know that like that probably didn't happen here we can hope and the other thing that i really appreciate and again this is probably also like bar is on the floor but there are so many movies especially movies set in medieval and medieval inspired fantasy settings where the women are mostly there for the purpose of being love interest for the men. Uh, And first of all, that certainly is not the case for our two, you know, major female characters or for that matter, you know, Safina, our woman villain. Uh, But that's certainly like, that is not the case for either Halga or Doric. They certainly have like a lot of other things they're contributing. Halga really doesn't have a romantic storyline that matters at all. Like we meet her Mm ex-husband and know that she's, you know, kind of still like has feelings for him, but you know, that's not like a big plot thing. And Doric, we know that Simon was interested in her, tried to court her. She was not interested and at the end, to, you know, jump forward slightly, mm-hmm. there is, like, he's, like, is there any chance, like, like, we could try again? And she's, like, yeah, I guess. But, like, it's not the romance yeah. is never the focus. Like. And he's not pushy about yeah. it. Like, it comes up a few times, but he's not, like, grabbing her or, like, forcing himself on her. And, like, again, like, one of those things that I'm so used mm-hmm. to that, like, or you expect them to just, like have sex for no reason right. like towards the end because like we might die soon you know like something like that it's just really nice that they like didn't go that far like yeah i think a lot of things about this movie was like 
they knew like just the right amount and they didn't really like step over yeah and he's not verbally pushy either because so i don't know do either of you watch the willow tv show i want to but i have okay so yeah a lot of people really appreciated it as a sapphic relationship and felt that that was very good and unfortunately a lot of shows with sapphic relationships are being canceled right now so like that's another thing that's been happening but like i don't know very much about it besides yeah i mean one of the things actually that sort of bummed me out is that i actually really liked that representation and like i really Mm -hmm. liked that there was like that there were like it was like a relationship that like centered queer women and i actually thought that like that was there were a lot of things that were really nice about that and so then it bummed me out that I didn't like the show more in general. But there's mm-hmm. a different character who literally is like on this trip essentially to like pursue and help like a man that she's in love with. And then there's another man who's also a part of this group and he's interested in her. And despite the fact that she has like made it very clear that she's like there because she's interested in somebody else, he like seems like he's like constantly like saying things to her and saying things to other people about like, oh, because she ever loved me, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, I don't care. A, I don't care (laughs) about your whole situation. Like, I do not care. A, B, in addition to how I don't care, it's also like, it feels creepy. And Simon never seems creepy. It seems like he took no for an answer. And now that he is interacting with her in another capacity, he, like, isn't creepy about it. They're just, like, friendly and sort of normal together. Like, he doesn't, like, in a, like mm-hmm. he doesn't try to kiss her, but he also doesn't, like, say anything to her about, like, being interested in her, even if, presu- like, yeah. he presumably is. But he doesn't say anything Especially... about it until the very end. Like, it's, he said he... But he does say it when they're in the, the treehouse city, the elf city. Yeah. But well, when he she, first, like, he's like, but, he's like, do you remember, like, I tried to And she you, says and no. Like, yes, she says no. <laughs> no, I and, don't remember and, that. Like, because your your lack of confidence turned me off that much. Like, so it never, it didn't make a blind bit of difference to her. And that's, again, that's, that's what I really appreciate about it is yeah. she reacts like that way. We also didn't get a scene where Chris Pine either looks at him and then looks at her and gives a nod. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. we didn't get a scene where he sits down, Chris Pine sits down beside him, like, as a man who's been married and as a man who has uh, has had a fair few loves yeah. in time, this is what you need to do. None of that was in this movie. It was just that they were their own two characters doing their own two things over there. And if there was some sort of romance between them at the end, and even at the end, it's an acknowledgement from her that it's a possibility now because Simon has yeah, become more confident. Like not a, yeah, I want you. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like they don't make out or anything. Like, because um he's a young man of color mm-hmm. like th- it could have so easily been made like creepy yeah. or like you know like unintentionally or not like really racist mm-hmm. and like there's a lot of talk about how american audiences still really don't like interracial yeah. relationships in film um it's cited as a major reason that the will smith margot robbie movie focus like didn't do very it's well a, was because it's a good central yeah like interracial couple and And in particular a man of color with a white woman yeah and like it's also something that comes up a lot in commentary about bridgerton like since we mentioned that before like it was a whole like issue in the first season where you have roger jean page and um oh god the young woman whose uh woman i uh whose name i don't remember phoebe something um 
yeah like that was like a whole point of like commentary mm-hmm. about the show where it's like it really fell into some like unfortunate tropes yeah. like with the two of them where like it just didn't like go the way that it should have so like knowing that they didn't make it like creepy or weird and it's just more of like a like yeah like maybe we'll go out and not like an oh my god we're gonna like tear each other's clothes yeah. off and be like gratuitously sexual like especially because they're all like they're very young yeah. too like it felt like the right level that that really relationship should be at. Yeah, like it felt sort of like sweet and nice, but also yeah, as I said, I just like I really liked that like the romance was really kind of like left to the side for the vast majority of the movie, right? That it comes up as like the establishing this is how we know each other and then it comes up at the mm-hmm. end and in the middle they just have like a perfectly fine like nice working relationship. Yeah. There's a lot of that um with with people using their skills and and achieving it. Like even the Simon character um so he doesn't believe in himself. So he has to <laughs> believe in himself. And when he finally comes to that realization that the problem was all in his head the entire time. And it's like, it's a great moment because it, nobody sat him down and said to him, listen, dude, you're holding yourself back. But he yeah. realizes that. So it's kind of jumping ahead, but like <laughs> we're not just for an hour and 20 minutes. Now. But um, near the end, he's been trying to attune with this helmet. So attune is a, like a and d thing where you, you can use a magic item by being able to basically join or meld with it or whatever. And he's attuned to a magic item and his ancestor keeps showing up and telling him he can't do it. No, you can't do it. You're you're a disappointment to me. Now, obviously, his ancestor doesn't exist. His ancestor's never been near that hat. So it's a manifestation of his own lack of self-confidence. And nobody has to tell him that. Yeah. He is at a point where his friends are in trouble. And he, well, actually, it's not even his friends are in trouble. He's about to get killed or t- captured. And he knows that when he puts on the helmet, time freezes. So he puts on the helmet, I think, assuming that he might have a second to be able to think his way out of the problem. And then he realizes, hold on a second. You are not actually my great, 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 great grandfather. You're just me. And you shouldn't have a reason to like, I don't have a reason I can do this. I know I can do this. I need to do this. And then it's done. The same thing with um, Doric, where she's worried about um, not being able to, to transform and, and be useful to the party. And she just does it. She's just there. She's like, oh, I'll stay back here and turn myself into a worm. And mm-hmm. I was thinking in other movies, I've seen this. This is just a reason to cut that character out of the movie. Like I've yeah. seen a ton of movies where character A says, I'll stay in the hotel room. And then they pop up at the end. And you're like, well, there was 25 minutes where we didn't have character A anymore. But she doesn't. She she says, I'm going to try and make a crack that I can crawl into and then shapeshift on the other side. And then while all the rest of them are going through their adventures, she makes a crack. She she does exactly what she said she was going to do and then is able to take part in the end of the movie. And I appreciate that sort of stuff where nobody has to be sat down and told, you can do it. Yeah, We're here for you. Like... And she's also, I think, the one that really figures things out in the maze, too. Yeah. She's really smart. Very, very quickly. So they really, like, they let all of them, like, have their own strengths in a way that, like... You don't always get in movies yeah. like the Avengers, which just kind of like, you know, sometimes it's like, the sometimes Stark they do the teamwork yeah. stuff really well. And then sometimes it's like, yeah, these people all don't need to be here. Yeah. 
so so Doric, we first meet, we see the shape-shifting skills. She like starts out as she's, it turns out she's like disguised as a horse and uh, and she's like, she, you know, she's ultimately trying to rescue somebody who uh, is like part of her community. So she disguises a horse. She then shifts into something called an owl bear, which is basically what it sounds like. And uh, it is a goddamn delight. And when I was like doing some reading for fun, apparently it is uh, something that it's from like the D&D games. And mm-hmm. it was inspired by like dime store toys made and sold in Hong Kong. That's so, like somebody just like saw and is like, I'm just going to use this. Yeah. Owlbear is uh, just from playing various video games over time. They will fuck you up. Like they are incredibly They look strong. like they fuck you up. Yeah. And when she shape shifts into them, like again, that's a, a re- <laughs> to get really into weeds, um, I, I, weeds that I don't know anything about, so I will be lost in here. Um, to get into weeds, that's a pretty high level spell to be able to turn herself into something which is physically larger than herself or physically smaller than herself. Yeah. She is a very competent druid, yeah. so the fact that she's able to do these things at all is, speaks to her skill set. And she does a lot of like shifting back and forth, like without reverting at any point to her original form, because like when she's like mm-hmm. in the next scene where she tries to infiltrate the castle, right? She starts it as a fly and then she turns into a mouse, then she turns into a deer, which is like the like funny callback because like Halka had been like, we should get a deer. a deer. We should come a deer. <laughs> and the, and everyone else is like, why, why would she be a deer? I think um it's nice too that like she does get to become this like big like brawling thing mm-hmm. because um there's a fantasy series I I really like absolutely love but um it's a werewolf based series and it's um you know a young woman who's a werewolf and like one of the rules that it does set up is like law of conservation of mass means that like you can only be like as big as you are like as a person as a wolf so like she because she's like a woman she's like a smaller than normal wolf and then you have like you know the men that are like bigger than normal and like it works like in a logic sense but like also is kind of like gender normy type tropes like and so it's like and like that is like part of what the series is critiquing but like here for like the woman to be this like big like hulking creature and like not have to like diminish herself Mm -hmm. and to be like all these things like larger or smaller than herself like is really cool and like another thing that i think is like really well yeah and as i said before at no point does she shapeshift into a booby lady to distract a guard yeah, yeah. The, the distracting a guard is Chris Pine and his terrible like right. spell that's like only half working. <laughs> so uh, when she is a atta- oh I, uh, oh I was going to say actually the other thing that I liked is that you know another thing that I feel like you often see is um, I feel like there's a lot of like overly incompetent villains and I really like mm-hmm. that even though obviously you know we have to win at the end. Uh, Sophina is also allowed to be extremely competent. And I like that, like, while, like, Doric is infiltrating the vault, Sophina, like, relatively quickly is, like, there's an intruder. Like, I can sense, right, that this, like, fly is not really a fly. It was getting to the point where, like, she was actually so competent. I was like, how are they going to, like, win in this movie? Because she was, like, so powerful. Yeah, and I did actually think, and and we'll talk about when we get there, but I actually think they did, a, like, a good job with, like, finding the way around that yeah. at the end. Yeah. But yeah, but, like, it was, like, it was kind of nice, right, that she also was, like, very, like, allowed to be very hyper-competent and that, like, oh, like, it makes sense that, like, if she's also a magic user that she can, like, sense, right, that there's magic happening in the room and that, like, you know, and that, like, this is this, you know, that this is, is like, not really a fly, right? And that, like, there's this, like, creature in the room that is not what it's saying it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so while Doric is uh, in the cat is in the vault, uh, she realizes that the vault is guarded by this uh, basically like set of runes, essentially magical runes that are the defenses uh, of Morden Canaan, which is I think it's a thing I didn't look it up. Um, <laughs> and Simon's like, this is definitely like beyond my skills. <laughs> And his suggestion is that uh, there is this relic that's called the Helm of Disjunction, which, as we'll see, is a, like, fancy helmet, and that this is what they could use. Uh, and he does actually basically already, like, say, though, to <laughs> yeah. uh, Edgen, like, he's like, he's like, yeah. look, like, I have to attune. I'm not really good at attuning. This also I did, like, very much feel, and, you know, we'll we'll get there as we talk about the, the attuning scenes more, but it also does definitely feel like it's, like, the character who's like the low level character who keeps getting like a one every time they're rolling. <laughs> uh, so, and also it's very D and D like this idea of yeah. we have come across a problem and then somebody tells them, well, here, what about this magic artifact that mm-hmm. will solve the problem? Well, we'd better go on a quest to find the magic artifact. Now, Sarah, I'm assuming we're going to talk about the legend of Vox Machina season two. Yes. That's that's the entirety of season two of The Legend mm-hmm. of Vox Machina is. We need these five artifacts. Here's an episode where this character goes and gets their artifact. This character goes and gets right. their artifact. So they each get their own individual episodes, their own little dungeon to go into and explore. And at the end, they have the artifact. Well, I don't want to explain. Don't tell me the whole ending. I haven't watched it, watched it yet. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I'm saying. I'm not going to. But like that's effectively what is happening here. Is mm-hmm. And I saw a review of it where somebody was like, uh, oh, the movie just feels like disconnected, um, little uh, disconnected little um, little action sequences. But that's what D and D is. Yeah, like D and D is. Oh, you tried to break into the castle. You just about escaped. Now we know the problem. You got that piece of information. We have to find a way to solve the information. Go get the thing that will help you. I also um really appreciated that. They have Simon in particular be like, magic is not the solution to everything that everyone thinks it is. Mm -hmm. Like, they had, they felt like, and it felt like partly like the writers being like, you know, people are going to be like, well, why didn't they just do like XYZ? And the the writers were like getting ahead of that. Yeah. Like, we can't just like magic every problem away. And like, they, they found a nice way to like work that into the plot and have it be relevant, but also be like the writers being like, look, guys, we know that like there are easier solutions to this that we're not going to pull. So I, yeah. I really thought that that was like a nice thing to like put in there and be like, we can't just like magic this away. We genuinely have to like sit and think and figure it out. And also very related, right, to actual D and D gameplay again. In that, mm-hmm. in if you're playing D and D, you can't just be like magic and wave your hands and yeah. then the problem's fixed. You need to say, okay, here's a very very specific spell that I. You know, I think even like, right, you can't just use any spell. You have to have like learned and prepared and memorize the spell. And so then you have to be like, okay, there is this tool and I have this tool. And uh, like in the same way, right, as you're like using an axe, that like magic like functions as a tool in D&D mechanics in very similar ways that you have to say like, okay, I have this specific spell and this specific spell can do X. And this is how that will help in this particular moment. 
And so I actually appreciated that aspect of it as well. And, you know, and like, then that, you know, is like comes up and then it's like, okay, so now I have like a very specific thing that I have that can be useful for finding this helm. And it's like, I can't just do say a spell that's like, I am like, where is the helm? And then there's like an answer that comes from the skies being like, the helm is over here. That instead, it seems like, okay, so the last people that we know saw the helm were in this context of this battle. Those people are dead. I actually have this specific spell that allows me to go and talk to the dead. <laughs> in this also, <laughs> this like, very structured scary. and limited way. Yeah, we have to go to uh, the graveyard. I love this scene. Yes. Uh, who are, by the way, Hulk's ancestors. <laughs> uh, we are told. I, um, I really liked that they... So each corpse they resurrect can answer five questions and like it did what I expected with the first corpse, which is like, of course, they're like accidentally asking questions and the corpse is answering and then the corpse just like falls right. back because they like totally wasted it. But it like didn't do that. Like I expected that joke to happen over and over again and they just did it once and then like, you know, again, like they hit it, they hit that beat, they knew it was expected and then they moved past it. But I I really liked that like they just end up following this like ridiculous sequence of people where like one person that they asked they're like oh i gave it to so and so and that guy like slipped and fell and like cracked his head open in the bath that morning yes and just didn't make the battle well, at all and then i think like they were, they were like no they yes it was like they said they gave it to you and he's like yeah. no they gave it to my brother sven i'm yeah. ven <laughs> yeah and it's like that was like really funny to me because like i wasn't expecting yeah. that so i just love that it's like this total like chain of people and they're like oh my fucking god we're gonna have to talk to like every corpse in this cemetery and as sarah was saying before about (laughs) you could feel it like a rolling dice like that thing with the five questions you can totally picture Mm -hmm. that happening in a real play situation where the dungeon master and where you fuck up the first time fucks up the first questions and everyone's like does that count yes um oh no it doesn't really count does it yes like you can totally (laughs) see a dungeon master doing it Everybody gets a little laugh out of it, except for one guy who's really grumpy and ruins every D&D session, apparently. But um, that, that happens to move on. And then they're more careful at the next one. They're asking questions of these people. They're like, yes, go on. And this, this, this is the anti-Donna guys. And all of them are very funny. It's like yeah. a genuinely enjoyable, humorous answers. What's your favorite food? Well, I don't know. I mean, there's so many foods I could eat. Right. Well, because like, then that's the other thing, right? So first of all, you know, as Tracy was saying, right, I also appreciated that, like, it's like, they don't do the same joke over and over again, that like, they're all funny, but like, they do different things comedically with the different corpses. But yes, that is also great, because as they kind of move along, you know, they don't always necessarily actually need five questions from everybody, because sometimes some of them aren't that Mm -hmm. useful, because, you know, it turns out that they, you know, (laughs) died and uh, hit their, you know, they like hit their head on a like on the bathtub and died before the battle. So there's not really that much you can ask. Uh, but that you specifically have to ask them five questions in order for them to then re-die. Or you're just, like, leaving them as these, like, sad animated corpses. Uh, <laughs> so there's, like, one, there's, like, the what's your favorite food? Like, what's two plus two? Like... <laughs> Um, I also laughed at the the one that they asked, like, his favorite book or something, because everybody, like me, knows that struggle. And yes. also, um, 
As part of the promotion for this movie, Esquire asked Chris Pine to give them, like, five favorite books, and he gave them, like, 20. And, like, it's just this, like, really endearing article where he's, like, going through his collection and, like, in the course of mentioning the 20 books, just, like, keeps mentioning even more and, like, the bookstores where he bought them. And I was just reading. I'm like, this is why, like, it's like he's an actor that I really appreciate. That's why people like Chris Pine. Going yeah. on about it. Yeah. He's one of us, just a very, very beautiful yeah. one of us. I know. It's like, oh, nerds <laughs> um, can be that beautiful. Also, fun that they, they first of all, they zoom out and there's like, they've like dug up like 20 graves and they yeah. like do not return the graves. <laughs> like, it's just like they have a lot of, there are a lot of like open caskets with the like now returned corpses. And the one guy who they ask the favorite book question and while he's dithering on, they say, great, and they write off. But that it turns out was only the fourth question. Hmm. So they've just left that they, one there. They thought it was the fifth. Yeah. But then he's like, that's only four. But they either either do not hear or do not care. Uh, <laughs> and the person that that last one then sends them to is uh, this character that we've mentioned before, Zenk Yandar, who is this paladin. He uh, was from the, the country that the red sorcerers are from and kind of took over. But he like fled when he was a kid and is like, you know, not... Either, either not neither evil nor part of an undead zombie army, which seem to be the two options for most people from Faye. Effectively, what happened, and we get it from his point of view later on, is that the red priests, the red wizards, um, red priests. I don't know why I call them red priests. Um, the That's red wizards. Uh, it is his Game of Thrones, and it's it's also uh, the Austin Ard books by um, Tad Williams. But the red the red wizards, uh, they were running or leaders for these people um, almost like a religion for them and then they they got them all together in a stadium similar to what's going to happen at the end and effectively put this poison mist on them that turned them into evil people so that that happened 35 years ago so for somebody chris pine's age um the people they have always been evil so they've either been red wizards or these evil people who would just kill you as far as you're concerned so he obviously because they killed his wife as well has resentment towards him and doesn't believe that there's such a good thing as a good fae but zenk um played by Regé jean page is that how you pronounce it the guy from bridgerton um he has been going around doing acts of good the entire way through uh through the entirety of of the forgotten realms or wherever it happens to be set and because of this all of the other characters have heard of him they're like, ah, actually, I have heard of this guy. Maybe we should go and check him out. So they go looking for yeah. Zenk Yander. And it's really great when they find him because there is a like film trope of called like Save the Cat, which is that that's yeah. how you establish, right, that so-and-so is really a good person. Is that like, is that like they like the meta, like metaphorically save the cat, right? That like they save some sort of like helpless being from... Uh, from danger and our introduction to Zank Yandar <laughs> is that he literally saves the cat in that there is a like humanoid like ish cat person who is like you know who is like standing by looking anxious and Zank Yandar manages to uh pull from the jaws of a this like some sort of like giant you know giant fish the this woman's kitten <laughs> <laughs> This cat woman, they're, they're called Tabaxi. 
and tabaxi are humanoids that, that look and, and shit like cats. And it's also funny to see that obviously uh, cats eat fish and in this world the fish was yes. trying to eat the cat. Uh, and as you said... I think they do a really nice job with her of like, she's never been able to let go of the fact that she was banished from her tribe because she married a halfling. So it's like, she doesn't really want to get back with her husband necessarily, but she also recognizes in the end that like, she doesn't have her tribe, but she has her people. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, she has like her family and like, it was nice that like, that was enough for her mm-hmm. and they didn't have to do this like big dramatic, like going back to her people and like, you know, yeah. settling like, you know, her feelings about them. Like they just had to her, like, um, there's an article, I think it was on the Mary Sue, but it was like one of these pop culture sites just recently did an article about like, how this movie really did like the found family right in a yeah. way that a lot of other movies gets wrong. Mm-hmm. And like, and it doesn't like necessarily beat you over the head with yeah. it. Like it comes probably close with Edgar and Holga and Kira, but like it managed to get at like the core of that dynamic in a way that like a lot of other movies would like really fumble on their way to it. And I also really like also that in terms of her ex-husband, it seems like it's like, I mean, I think they're like subtle about it. I don't think they like, I don't think they actually outright say this, but that, you know, she goes, and she sees him and has this conversation with him and meets his like new girlfriend or wife or whatever she is and I like that I feel like there is something of a sense at least though as I said I don't think they explicitly say it that it's not that she desperately wants to get back with or is desperately still like in love with her ex-husband it's that she has these like feelings about the fact that like she gave up her tribe to be with this guy Mm -hmm. and now she has neither yeah yeah right and And so it's like it's so i don't think it's about getting together with the ex-husband it's about like her figuring out who her family and her people are right and that like that's what that like that would be what her business is i guess and from his point of view uh that's a that's a really well-written scene is because he didn't break up with her because she went to prison he says specifically that prison was just one part of it is that she had never gotten over the fact that her family had kicked her out so the entire yeah. time that they were living together, she brought it up all the time and she was constantly thinking about it, as, as Tracy mm-hmm. said. She, it, it was constantly on her mind. So their relationship was already in the toilet because, <laughs> yeah, it, it, like, I'm sure it's, it's hard for people to imagine this or whatever, but being in a relationship and married to somebody and living in a house with somebody who resents the fact that you're there because yeah. you're the reason that they broke up. I also think it's very funny that he plays a halfling effectively. So halfling is really um is the equivalent of hobbits. They're just not allowed to say mm-hmm. hobbits in D and D for yeah they um, because they, they got fucking sued got in trouble yeah, they got yeah. sued <laughs> or um, like were threat or like a threatened so they can't say that. But he uh, obviously likes big women because his new girlfriend yeah. or his new partner <laughs> is bigger than Holga and Holga is much much bigger than he is and it, and you see um, Holga at the end starts like eyeing another up like small another small guy yeah. man so it was like they each have I a type it. clearly yeah, yeah. Edgin, Edgin literally says like when the rest of them see her husband he's like we were all a little bit surprised <laughs> when we met him and I thought that was great and um, the scene that happens just after she's finished talking to her husband is um i mentioned it off mic is one of my favorites where um she's clearly like sad and you know having to reconcile that like this relationship is over and she gets on her horse and edgin starts like singing to her 
And I was really expecting, like, a moment where it's like, haha, the tough lady, like, punches him in the face mm. or, like, tells him to stop singing. But, like, she really takes it in the spirit of which it was intended and starts, like, singing along with yeah. him. And it's really, like, sweet and touching. And it really gives them this, like, and that was, like, one of the moments where I was almost, like, expecting it to be romantic. But it's really more of, like, a brother-sister mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. And it's, like making sure she's okay without being infantilizing about it and like sort of giving her like what she needs to like let go and yeah. I like, really appreciate it. Yeah, so as he's uh, a bard, I mean, that's yeah. his skill is yeah, and, then, yeah. and that's what he can he's do. He's a buff. Yeah, he's there to buff people's her. people's emotions and people's skills. Yeah. So a yeah. couple of things also that like jumped out to me related to all of this. So first of all, right, again, the fact that's like in general, right, she she has emotional intelligence, right? That that's yeah. not something that gets like taken away from her because she's like tough, that she can do both of those things, which is like rare in general for characters and I think especially rare for women. Uh, and the other thing that I wanted to note is that there is at some point in there, right, there's a little, uh, I think we, we missed it before, that there's a scene where... Uh, Edgen and Holga are in a bar and the person, you know, seeing like, a, you know, you know, because of like compulsory heterosexuality, sees like a man and a woman sitting next to each other and is like, oh, like what, oh, what your would you like, what, yeah, what do you and your yeah. wife want? And, you know, they're just immediately like, well, like, no, 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 no. And I uh, also enjoyed, you know, in general, right, I enjoyed that this is like never even slightly romantic. But also in particular, I enjoyed that she at some point was like, I just really don't like your lips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like she says like they're too big for your face or something yeah and it's just like you know i i really always like i kind of appreciate the like you know especially it's like chris pine is like a very attractive man and so i just really like her being just like yeah no like i just don't i just don't find you attractive at all yeah you're just not my type yeah i like small men oh. uh, all of us and i and i don't like your lips we were in this and we're going us thin-lipped short dudes we have a chance <laughs> gotta stick together you and chris pine so, uh, they do find Zenk Yandar, and uh, he eventually, you know, decides that he's going to help them. He uh, makes, um, I was about to say Chris Pine, uh, he makes <laughs> it swear that he, instead of keeping the treasure, will redistribute it to the people of Neverwinter. And then takes them to go and fetch the helm. Uh, this is, of course, also, like, a quest. It's not just that he has, like, the helm, like, sitting in his, like, fucking attic or whatever. They have to, like, <laughs> go into this, like, thing called the Underdark, which is vaguely horrific. Yeah. Yeah. And, again, it's a thing from Dungeons & Dragons, this right. idea of this. Like, effectively, this is the dungeon from Dungeons & Dragons in the movie. Like, this is what's going to happen. And... Uh, they go into so think of it as like the upside down in Stranger Things. They go into mm-hmm. this place, which is like a, a a bastardized version of the real world. It's dangerous. Everything is dangerous there. To come past these brain bugs, which uh, apparently are attracted by intelligence, and the bugs just completely ignore them and walk <laughs> past. And I thought that was going to come back. Like I, at the time, I thought it was like they're going to go back. It's going to be like really. It's going to get on one of their heads. I generally thought it was going to get on yeah. to um Zank Zander's head because in another worse movie, this is where you'd lose. Yeah, right. Person who's showing you the way, but it didn't. They all walk past, and they're all like, "Oh, I kind of feel a little bit insulted by this." That was a little. That was a little hurtful. (laughs) That was like one of my biggest laughs of the movie. (laughs) They're all like, "Oh, like fuck you too." (laughs) Yes. And they get they get to this bridge. 
and they're all discussing how to get on and Zenk is explaining like this is how you get across it you have to step every second one until you get halfway across and then you have to go every odd numbered one but you have to go from left foot to right foot and then Simon accidentally just steps on the footbridge of the bridge and says and the bridge collapses and he says something along the lines of I didn't realize that was the first step <laughs> which is again pretty funny it's not a laugh out loud oh what a crazy funny moment it was just a <laughs> That might happen. That was also another thing that I felt was like a clever, like dungeon master, like this would happen kind of yeah. thing. Because there's like a there's a really popular post where it's like you'll like set the scene with like all this like specific information. You're like, there's a shadowy figure in the corner that like you know the players are supposed to talk to, and your players are like, well, who else are, is in the pub? And it's like there's an orc named Sminkledorf, <laughs> and the players will be like, I want to talk to Sminkledorf, <laughs> and it's like so it's like the dungeon master sets out like this really elaborate like scenario to get through this trap and the players just like totally fucked yes. up just like felt so right yeah that yeah so i really i really enjoyed that and i also liked that it was like there was like a fun way that they then managed to get around it is that so there was this walking stick that Helga had given to her ex-husband and then like swipes it as she leaves because like fuck this guy and uh the stick as it turns out is some sort of Mystical staff. I'm pretty sure it had a name. I don't remember the name. Hither, the hither, the hither, hither, dither staff. staff. Yeah. The hither, the hither, yeah. dither staff. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to say that. Uh, <laughs> the, the fun magic staff. And the fun magic staff, uh, if you have two points that you can see, you can like shoot the staff at one and then at the other. And then that creates a portal. And so, you know, if you're standing on one end of what was until relatively recently a bridge, you can, you know, shoot the staff at a rock on your side of the bridge and then again at, the, at a rock on the other side of the bridge and that can that's how they get through and for video game fans if this sounds like the portal gun from portal it's because it's the portal gun from portal <laughs> like that's exactly <laughs> what me, it is it, um, for a young woman like me who grew up in her formative years watching the x-men movies you start <laughs> hearing alan coming in nightcrawler talking like, yeah. about how he can't teleport places that he can't see <laughs> <laughs> i thought you were gonna say for me a big Jane Austen head. This is just like <laughs> this is just like that part. You know, the hither thither staff that uh, It's uh, in Mansfield Park, I swear. Instead of like walking places. Yeah. Darcy gives Elizabeth as a wedding present the hither thither staff. <laughs> so that she can go and visit her terrible family. Yeah, so that she can go and visit her terrible family um, and he doesn't have to come. <laughs> Um, but they get set upon by assassins after they get across the bridge and the assassins uh, were sent. We were shown them in a scene from with Safina earlier. They are Thean assassins and one of the guys kills like six or seven guards. So we know that they're really good swordsmen. Um, we know that our group of intrepid heroes are not particularly good swordsmen, but that's when Zenk comes in to save the day again. And he's just like a badass. And he's, it, this is an incredibly well done action scene. Now, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, as a dude who likes sword fights, this is about as good as they get. Like, this is, it's great. It was very, like, John Wick, like, you know, not a lot of talking, but, like, really well choreographed, like, action in a way that like, yeah. was really cool to watch. Yeah, and it was also, like, there's a lot going on in the scene, because in addition to the uh, Theon assassins, there is also a dragon that pops up, uh, Thembershow, the uh, red dragon, who is uh, a rather pudgy dragon. He's a big chunk, he's a big chunky boy. <laughs> I love that they say, like, did he eat his horn? Like, he's massive. <laughs> he's very, he's got this very, like, this cat is chunky vibes. 
Yeah. I like really want him to be my best friend. I know I really want him to be my best friend. At some point, he's just like rolling, <laughs> and like you really expect like at some point that he's going to like stop pursuing them, but like no, it's a big dragon, yeah. but it just keeps going, yeah. and they're like, oh shit. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know what? I like that, you know, he is a bit chubby, but, like, that clearly does not prevent him from being very effective as a dragon. <laughs> yeah, um, that's the thing about this as well, is uh, dragons, it doesn't matter if they get big. They're still dragons. Yeah, he's like, still a fucking dragon. You're, you're not going to have the stuff. Um, And then they get trapped, and they use the dragon's breath, and... um. Kira's ability to, to transform, or Kira, uh, Doric's ability to transform to help them effectively create uh, a fire. And then, it, it well, they obviously don't kill the dragon, but it blows them and get, allows them to escape and then they swim off. And also they use, uh, it's like Simon's dumb, like, finger candle spell. Yeah. yeah. And I was sort of like, Again, like, one of those things that you expect to happen because on all these other movies, like, I was really expecting, like, a you shall not pass moment where, like, they, like, lost one of them. Like, especially, like you said, Roger Jean Page. Like, this is exactly you know, the yeah. moment where you'd lose him, like. Yeah, yeah, like, it was, like, I was expecting that to happen and then it didn't. I was like, oh, cool. Like, we managed to, like, get everybody out of this alive and yeah. it didn't have to, like, go for, like, the cheap emotional play of, like, your mentor or, like, your wise you know guru friend just like dies in the process yeah. and as i said to you uh, said before and i said to you guys um before the the recording is this movie gives off um the, the first avengers vibes and guardians of the galaxy vibes where mm-hmm. you know they're all witty with each other and like rene jean page's character zenk is like he's thor the in, in the first movies and he's yeah. also drax like this I don't really get the comedy. I don't get your sarcasm. I'm going to take everything at face value. And also I'm going to walk in a perfectly straight line. And now <laughs> I'm no longer help like, you. They didn't overplay that yeah. joke for me as someone who I cannot stand the Guardians of the Galaxy films. Partly because Thank you very that, much. Joke wears, <laughs> that joke wears very thin. Mm. And also That's they're fair. all assholes to each other. Yeah. And, yeah. like, in a way that really bothers me. So, like, here, like, there was genuine affection between these people. And, like, that shouldn't be rare, but it is. Yeah. <laughs> so. Even Zenk and Edgen, like, shake yeah. hands. They have a nice accommodation. Yeah. yeah. And there was, like, a mo- like, there is a little tiny, tiny bit of toxic masculinity there that, like, I didn't love. But, like, in the end, like, they genuinely, like, respect each other. And yeah. I was really sort of expecting Edgen to, like weasel out of his promise to distribute mm-hmm. the wealth but he did it he did it like, yeah especially when part like a pretty central part of his motivation and we're going to come up on the other part of that soon is that he was really resenting that he couldn't like take money from yeah. his harper's deeds like you really expect him to like sort of like go for the money in like the typical like you know not reformed mm-hmm. like con artist kind of way and he doesn't like he really just like redistributes the wealth to the yeah. people in a really nice yeah, way. Yeah, and he yeah. doesn't he doesn't even think about it at any stage. Like he's no, never like, oh, any, okay. like he's there for Kira and that's what he's there yeah. for. Just yeah. in regards to the Guardians of the Galaxy thing, I think again the, the the casting comes into play here. If Chris Pratt was in this his position, I think they would yep. have gone with the toxic masculinity <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Because yeah. like effectively the relationship between them is very similar to um thor and star lord in mm. uh is it endgame the, the first one yeah. so infinity war where 
Star Lord is jealous of him because Thor is like a better version of him in every single way. Thor and is literally the better a better credit. The better credit. And yeah, and and in that thing, Star Lord never gets over it. And it's even it even becomes yeah. a joke. If anything, it gets worse. It's like at the, the start of the last um <laughs> Thor Love and Thunder, they're they're they can't rate to get rid of Thor from the ship. And like yeah. they're all laughing and and like Chris uh, or Star Lord um is like really playing up on this. Whereas Chris Pine is much more willing to share the spotlight, especially with somebody who is, mm-hmm. in terms of star power, Rene right, Jean like Page. He like, uh, he's, yeah. he's like upcoming. Like yeah. he's barely breaking into Hollywood at yeah. this point. Like I think this is probably one of his first major film yeah. roles. Honestly, yeah. it might be his first. And he gets the hero yeah. moment. Like uh, he gets, yeah. he gets to do the big, sexy. Look at how badass this guy. As you said, the John Wick scene. Yeah. Um, Whereas Chris Pine never gets to do anything like that. Like the closest he gets yeah. is being clever, which is again he plays a part. That's what he's there for. Paladins are there to go toe to toe with like dudes who are assassins and knights and stuff. Bards are there to inspire and come up with plans. The other reason I think it doesn't devolve too much into the kind of obvious toxic masculinity thing is also I think having to do with the writing and that they establish a specific reason for Edgin mm-hmm. to not want to lick Zink, mm. right? Yeah. That they emphasize the fact like, oh, I I don't like the Thay because they killed my wife. I don't, you know, and obviously we've talked about that, but at least like, right, it's a clear like, I don't trust the Thay. I also like, he's associated with the Harpers. He's like, well, I'm pretty grumpy about the Harpers because I kind of blame the Harpers for like having put me in this whole situation where ultimately like, I didn't feel like I could support my family and that's why I like, mm-hmm. everything got fucked up. And so, like, that I liked as well, that he doesn't just not like, it's not that he doesn't like Zenk because, like, Zenk is, you know, better at fighting than he is or yeah. anything like that, right? Like, or, like, better, not that he's, you know, they're both, they're both very good looking men. Um, but, like, so it's, it, right, so it's not, like, something like that, that it's, like, you know, it's not, like, his, like, masculinity is, you know, affected by, like, the way that, like, Zenk is badass or anything like that. It's like, I have a very specific reason, you know, to potentially not trust this person because he's associated with these two groups of people that I have, like, a pretty Mm -hmm. good reason to not trust. So Simon is uh, not succeeding in uh, attuning with the helm. And uh, he keeps getting these, like, visions of his grandfather. And his grandfather, I also looked this up, so his grandfather is, like, a big deal, like, sorcerer within D&D canon stuff, who uh, traditionally, in terms of how he's portrayed, is just, like, a straight-up Gandalf knockoff. Mm. (laughs) But they can't use Gandalf. He's legally distinct. Fandolf, no, I I don't remember what his name actually is, but like in terms, but like in terms of like like it's like he is like an old wise wizard who's like sometimes seems like a little bumbling, but really is extremely powerful, and he's always smoking a pipe. It's like, come on, guys, uh, who could that be? But he's get he, he's he's not Gandalf the Red, okay, okay, he's legally distinct. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so he, you know, is is doing this. And so he, you know, is and like, this is going very, very poorly. Uh, everybody gets mad at Edgen for a bit because Edgen, uh, because Simon, you know, notes that he like told Edgen, he's like, look, I told you I couldn't fucking do this. And Edgen was like, I thought it was fine. And everyone's like, the fuck, dude, why did you, you know, put us through all this trouble for this? But And this is where there's just another little reference from um, 
Doric to their past relationship stuff where he says like I told you I wouldn't be able to do it and she says something along the lines of well you know we've had that conversation you know something very like it's not a well when we were trying to go out you were the exact same it was just like well we've had that conversation before like and And it very much fits in context right it's something that like it makes sense that specifically the like one of your flaws is that you lack self-confidence would come up in this particular setting where his flaw that he lacks self-confidence is very much on display. Yeah. Yeah. And um, this is where Edgen admits what really happened in that um, when he was, you know, getting resentful about not being able to provide for his family in the way that he would have liked because of his Harper's oath, um, on the way out of prosecuting those red wizards, he took a piece of their treasure, was presumably going to pawn it or something, and um, didn't know that the red wizards mark their treasure and so were able to find, you know, his home. And he basically says, like, I just was, like, unfortunate enough that I wasn't there when they came. Like, he wishes that he died yeah. in that attack. Yeah. And, like, feels guilty for his wife dying. And it's just, like, this really raw moment of him admitting that he's a failure and like he even says like after this that like literally all he can do is plan and this is the moment i mentioned before where he literally says like i am going to sit on this rock and like come up with a different plan and it's just like not what you expect of like a male hero yeah and like that was like really nicely done i felt even if like they they have a moment in early on in the film where they linger on him like looking at the treasure as he's leaving so like i expected that it was going to be something Mm -hmm. like that and that it was going to turn out that, like, he had, like, this motive. But, like, they really played it off in, like, a really vulnerable, like, way that didn't feel, like, wallowing in it or making, like, a spectacle of his grief in that way. Mm-hmm. And also that, like, yeah. I feel like it is relatively rare as well, right? That you actually get to have men in films and also maybe in real life admit that they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> It it was definitely like it's one of those uh, things. Ollie, where, like, not all sort men, of it... okay? Not hashtag <laughs> not all men. Hashtag not all men. Hashtag men. let us die. That's all we can yeah. say. <laughs> yeah, like um, you sort of like expect there to be like a moment where he admits to like some kind of failure, but it was like bigger than I yeah, expected. Yeah, yeah, that he's very much like I recognize, like I recognize that I really screwed up and that like I did the wrong thing and that like all of these bad things that happened in my life are like precisely my fault and are like very specifically the con the con like the consequence of this way that I fucked up. And we're coming to um, this speech that he gives to quote unquote Kira in a little bit where I was really pleased is almost the wrong word, particularly that he even says to her, like, my motives in all of this were bad because she was a baby when his wife was killed. And he even says to her, like, I was not trying to get your mom back. I was trying to get my wife yeah, back. Yeah, I really liked that as, like, admitting that he was being very selfish. You you didn't get to know her, and I just feel like if you could get to know her, like, you would love her and, you know, want her back too. And I was, like, I was really floored that they, like, in a mainstream action movie, they managed to make that distinction because yeah. that's not really the level of emotional intelligence yeah. that you get in movies like this. And also that a man so, apologized. Yeah. <laughs> and earlier on, when he explains to Zank why he's doing this, Zank says, 
like before you do just remember that there are different realms and different worlds and that she's gone from this one but she's been living in her next life <laughs> or mm-hmm. her next world for seven years or whatever it happens to have been a cast because Kira, like 11 years because she was a baby yeah because Kira's a baby so So it's been 11 years and your wife has been living on the next plane for that entire time so don't be selfish like yeah and I think they do really effectively establish right that it is selfish that him wanting to bring her back Mm -hmm. it's not about her it's not about their daughter it's about his mistake I mean and the fact that he misses her but mm-hmm. that it's not, but that it is, you know, that that is also something that's selfish. So they come up with uh, essentially a, a range of alternate plans. Um, so the next idea that they come up with is essentially that they, instead of getting into the vault using the helm of disjunction, they're going to instead use the hither thither staff. Yay! Hey, <laughs> to uh, basically get themselves into the vault by getting themselves in through a something that is going to go into the vault. So that basically they make a portal out of a like a portrait, which I'll talk more about the portrait later. I have thoughts. A beautiful about the portrait. portrait. Um, is it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so they like have that all set up. Uh, But that plan does not ultimately end up working out super well, because as soon as the portrait gets uh, put down, it promptly falls over. (laughs) Yeah. It it works perfectly, except for that. Yeah. Except for the fact that the portal then opens up onto a, like, solid stone floor. Yeah. I have to say, too, that I was not expecting that. Like, I'm just used to movies where, like, these things work out perfectly. So when the portrait fell over, I was like, I genuinely don't know what this movie is going to do. Yeah. Because, like we said, like, Safina is so powerful. And then, yeah. like, their one, like, plan that you really think is going to work just, like, fails immediately. I was like, all credit to this movie for really, like, fucking with the tropes and being yeah. like, no, we're not going to do what you think we're going to do. I was going to say, and this is the moment now where the party splits where they go to the original, which is, we'll cause a diversion and sneak in. And um, Doric says, I'll wait behind. If I can make a crack, I can convert myself into thing. So they're not just putting all their eggs in one basket. They're in two separate baskets. And it turns out that both of them were successful at the same time. Except we're going to find out that there's been a double cross the entire time. Yeah. And it was really interesting because the Dungeons and Dragons wisdom is that you don't split your party. Yeah. It's like, you know, considered like one of the worst things that you can do so that the movie does that and actually has that like work in their favor. Was really I know because I was absolutely I was like, oh, no, they split the party. Everything's good. Everything's <laughs> going to go to hell now. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and I so yeah, I thought that was fun. Um, and also, so in in this bit, right, there's also the, like, because, you know, we have, like, Chris, uh, Chris Pine Edgen as, like, the person who, like, is, like, making plans, and that's, like, his deal. He's like, okay, so, like, plan C is that, like, um, uh, Simon's going to try again at the helm of disjunction. And, like, they're like, is that just plan A? He's like, no, plan A is a stink on it. It's just plan C. Uh, <laughs> and then, like, and then, you know, when, when uh, Dorix is just like, okay, I'm going to, like, do this thing and chip away at this and, like, go through the port and this, like, portal is planned. He's like, great, and that's plan D. And, and everyone's like, is that the same as plan B? He's like, no, plan B has got the stink on it, too. This is plan D. <laughs> and it's good. And that that's, that's funny, but it's not banging you over the head with, oh, look at the witty dialogue we wrote, which is what happens with a lot of, you know, 
Avengers style movies. And that I think it's still Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. And And that I think it is still like really functioning, right? That like you're like you laugh at that, but you still like care what ends up happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um like I said, like I at this point in the movie, I genuinely was like, how are they gonna get out of this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is the point where they, they, there's a little bit of a mix-up or there's a little bit of a problem where Justice Smith, um, Simon, is projecting an image of Chris Pine playing the loot and uh, <laughs> distracting the guards and then he gets his foot stuck so it starts to melt and, and fall away. Anyone who's ever seen Total Recall, it's very similar to what happens to Schwarzenegger's disguise and that. And uh, then they get chased by guards. Simon is... F- finally masters the attunement, which gets him into the vault. And Chris Pine goes to find Kira. And I thought this was going to be a moment where like, oh, he can't find her. He goes straight to her room and she's in her room. So he sits down and he explains, this is where we, we talked about, he explains that he was in the wrong and that he was motivated by herself. Uh, one of the good things about it is that earlier, the first time that they met after a while, he starts trying to explain why he was doing stuff. And she says something along the lines of, why are you talking like this isn't your fault? This is like yeah, the yeah. reason that you were in yeah. prison was your fault. The reason that you were away from me for the last couple of years was your fault. You're trying to pass the blame. And he looks at her as he's about to tell the story of, I was gone because, of, and he says, actually, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, you're, it was my fault. I, I fucked up. I'm the one who made the mistake. And as you said, it's very hard for a man to admit, in, or sorry, in these movies, in real life, some of us are really yeah. nice. Yeah, but <laughs> but in, in movies, it's very hard for the, the main character who's a man to admit that he did mistakes. I mean, I love Tom Cruise movies, but for all of the comedy they can wring out of Tom Cruise making mistakes and small things going wrong in a Mission Impossible movie, he's always right. Like, he's always yeah. right. In Top Gun, he might get thrown out of the bar for not being able to pay his tab, but... He's always right in every single thing that happens. Like, right. And again, it's perfectly fine to enjoy those movies. I love Top Gun Maverick. But, you know, sometimes it's nice to see that vulnerability of somebody being mm-hmm. actually able to say, I made it. Yeah, I am... I am a big person for like accountability in these movies yeah. and um and especially like you brought up Alien before and there's like a there's like a viral tweet where a man said that like his wife's review of Alien was like a movie where like every man involved should have listened to the woman and like you know the entire plot would have been avoided. Right, and only the smart so. woman and her cat and the cat survive five stars. Yeah. Yeah. But like Justice Smith gets into the vault and it's empty. Chris Pine comes in, Holly comes in, and they they're wandering around, there's nothing there. And at the same time, Doric manages to get into where the horde is and it's been put onto a ship. And she's like, oh, it was never in that vault at all. He um, Forge has been playing a double cross on all of the richest people in Neverwinter. And then they realize that he's going to make an escape and he's going to take the real Kira with him. So oh, also just for, uh, just good to say Kira that he confessed to was Safina. And then what I also liked about that is he uh, he doesn't repeat his speech when he does find a real yeah. Kira. Yeah, he just goes, like, he re- well, I kind of said that to Safina. Literally, yeah, is like, I gave most of the speech to her. And it's like he he kind of has to like fumble for his words and yeah. come up with like an even even better like version of what he was saying that like emphasizes the important parts but yeah, yeah. I was like that felt really like real life to me like when you accidentally like say something that a person that you didn't want to say it to and you're like crap what was that I can't <laughs> right. remember and also like D&D right where if like that had actually yeah. happened and you like did this whole moment and then you're like I'm not gonna do that again <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
so they all get captured and are put into these uh, uh, basically like gladiatorial games that uh, Forge has, you know, been setting up. Um, this is, uh, so they have a bunch of different, like, groups of adventurers, essentially, who are, like, all, like, little D&D parties. Uh, one of them is, uh, actually the ones, the one from the, uh, the 1980s D&D cartoon series, uh, is actually, like, one of the parties. Yeah, so, it's uh, very good. Yeah. As, and for anybody my age who watched it and grew up watching that on a Saturday morning, in st- as soon as they're on screen, you're like... Oh no! Look, it's Eric. Like it's Simon. Like you just knew. I also um wanted to shout out here. Uh, speaking of other podcasts, um, I listened to a really good one called "Gayest Episode Ever," and um, which is about uh episodes of classic sitcoms, often from like the seventies and the eighties, that did episodes with like LGBTQ themes, and they did a sub series called "The Cartoons That Made Us Gay," where they look back <laughs> at the cartoons from their <laughs> the cartoons from that. their childhood that had like really unintentionally like subtext filled episodes and they did a really great one that they put on their public feed about the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon um I should probably give you the link so you can like put it in the show notes but um where they do this like trope of what you would normally be like your male adventurer like meeting a woman that he can keep like pace with like with his wits but like it's actually like another male character Mm -hmm. And it's really like, and it's that like romantic tension mm-hmm. trope, but it's between two men. And it's like, did they intend for it uh-huh. to be like that? Or like, did they not? And it's, it was really interesting to listen mm-hmm. to. And that is the only thing that I know about that cartoon. But I was like, it was really interesting to like, know that like, that was like, how that read to some people that like, of that age that had seen that cartoon. So like, that's the only experience I have with that cartoon, but I respect that it exists. <laughs> So they're in this, like, maze thing, basically. Uh, the maze also has this, uh, like, a couple of um, dangerous creatures in it. The thing that I adore and would like as a pet is that it's a... Um, you first see it and you're like, oh, it's this, like, plant-like Venus flytrap monster. And then it turns out that the Venus flytrap situation is the tail of a jaguar, which also then has, like, weird, like, like illusion powers, and I adore it. It's very fun. <laughs> it's very um, Avatar. What a nice spicy kitty. <laughs> <laughs> Enhanced kitty. <laughs> I have a cat who wishes that that was her vibe. <laughs> I was going to say, we need to get that power to build I know, check. right? <laughs> uh, so I think it is actually then it's Doric, right, who then manages to figure out how to escape that they, there's like this like yeah. goo that. Frozen cube thing. Yeah. Seem to instantly kill the other people, but when our main party is sucked into it, they're like, it's fine, you'll only be in there for a few seconds. I'm like, I think that's how long it took to kill the others, but okay. Yeah, or it seems like maybe like it took like three minutes to kill the others, and yeah, it's like, maybe. oh, we got out in uh, one minute, so it's fine. Uh. <laughs> guys, they're called gelatinous cubes, and I, you're, you guys noobs don't understand this, right? They are acidic. So when you're, I am, I'm explaining, I'm mansplaining gelatinous cubes. And if you get into it, you have no way to maneuver and you're effectively suspended, right? Doric sees somebody getting dissolved in it. And she's like, right, if we jump in here, it will, so the levels in the, um, in the maze are getting dropped down below the surface. Mm -hmm. So she's like, that should drop down in a minute. So if we jump in just at that point, we'll be able to drop down a level. 
um, and she has to okay. do it just at that point because they can't be in it for too long. And just as they jump in, she sticks her finger out of the cube, giving her an access point or an exit point, mm-hmm. and then she transforms into a snake. So she's able to snake her way out of the gelatinous cube because she has space because she can't move in a cube. And then she pulls all of them out. Um, it's a really, really, really well done scene. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's fantastic. So this manages to allow them to escape and get to the boat, which is uh, the boat that Forge has loaded up to be able to uh, take off. And so they're like on the boat. Uh, Forge shows up uh, with Kira. You know, they're trying to explain things to Kira. And, uh, you know, and at this point, uh, Forge, you know, shows Kira, at least his true colors, that he ends up actually like putting a knife to her throat and threatening her. Uh, Hulk mm-hmm. manages to save the day by launching a potato at his face. I'm yes. really glad the potatoes came back. And again, an- another moment that I was really glad they gave to the woman mm-hmm. where like, and like we said, like, it's literally her like being fierce to rescue Kira and she says like nobody touches my bug yeah. and like you know is rescuing like her surrogate daughter but like <laughs> it's also like her being a badass yeah. and not being like weak because she's rescuing like her daughter like it felt really like good and well earned yeah and I like that this is the I think the only moment really where Kira is like a woman in peril at least in a like yeah. obvious unsubtle way that you know you yeah. you might have expected there to be a lot more of that than there actually was uh, yeah, so they manage to escape, but as they're escaping, or they're as they're escaping, they realize that what was going on the whole time, and the reason that Forge wanted to get the fuck out of town, is mm. that Sophina was planning on doing the same thing that the Red Wizards did in Thay. That she was that basically the whole point of organizing these games was that it would get basically the whole town into this stadium in order to then be able to. Um, basically have, like, everybody gathered so you could turn them into your creepy undead army. Yeah. And it, the guys are on the boat. They're, they've won. They've escaped. They're they're ready to go. And they look up and see the cloud and they remember it from Zenk. And they're like, right, we're going to go back. We have to find some way to get the, um, get the populace out of the stadium. So they use the hitter-titter stick and distribute the wealth. Because where are people going to go? They're going to go after the money which has just fallen from the sky. And specifically, I adore this. Like, I giggled every time I saw it. There is a uh, hot air balloon, which is, like, has, like, four, like, sides, essentially. And every side is just a uh, giant replica of Hugh Grant's face. Mm-hmm. And specifically, very, very the way they do the hither, the hither, thither stick is that the, like, it's that it's, like, in, like, one of Hugh Grant's mouths. And all of the like coins are like spilling out of his mouth. It's just like vomiting money all over the stadium. And everybody's like, "Oh, cool! Like the gift we promised, we can leave now and go out and like get our money." And so then the uh, funny, it's fun because the only people that get killed are the like mega rich people people. who are like upstairs (laughs) betting on the games. Yeah. And also one of them at some point is like, you know, and like they all like we've, you know, had like vague references to them before. And like, they, you know, they seem to certainly just like be like a bunch of rich assholes. Um, and at some point, one of them is like they like he kind of sees into like what Sophina is doing. He's like, I don't know what you're doing, but you have to stop it right now. And just, like, fuck <laughs> so, you know, it's nice. You can, you know, get a good sense, right, of what it looks like when she then like starts killing people. But it's all uh, affects the people that we don't care <laughs> if they die. Yeah. <laughs> So Safina then goes to attack our group 
And this is definitely like the scene where like it is it is unclear <laughs> for a lot of the scene yeah. how on earth they could actually uh, win. But that also really pulls the teamwork off mm-hmm. really well. And in, like, a really nice way that, like, again, we don't always get in, like, some of these action films. Yeah, and, like, everybody really has something that they do. It also has, like, some good, uh, you know, callbacks. So one of the things, right, is that uh, Kira actually is involved because she Mm -hmm. has this invisibility pendant. And so she actually ends up playing a crucial role because of that. Uh, The other fun part that I liked is that, so she does one of these time stop spells. And Mm -hmm. the expectation that everybody has and that in fact we have the as the audience have is that Simon doesn't know how to is not skilled enough to counteract this but that in fact like he because of his newfound self-confidence does in fact stop it they just pretend it has affected them Mm -hmm. and then while they are artificially standing still we've had when we were in the games they had this like magic suppressing bracelet that they put on Simon and Doric and uh, this and then Kira while invisible comes up behind Sophina and puts the magic suppressing bracelet on her so and it was a really nice like subversion of like keeping the child like out of the danger because Edgin says to her at the beginning you know remember like when trouble starts like use your pendant and you really think that it's just going to be her hiding yeah. until she clinches it at the end and puts on the bracelet. And I was like, fuck yes. I was yeah. like, didn't do the thing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I thought that was cool that she actually plays a really pivotal role. Uh, I thought it actually was nice that, I thought it was nice that actually that like Simon, you know, gets his like moment, right? Yeah. Where he, you know, has managed to do something. Uh, and also it was then fun to then just watch Doric turn into an owlbear and just like pummel the now Sophina to death. Yeah. Yeah. It really like hinged on the younger characters yeah. more than like the older ones, which was nice because like we had seen plenty of the older characters like earlier in the film, so like it really became about like the younger characters really like saving the mm-hmm. day and Doric finally getting to beat the shit out of Sophia yeah. for like having slaughtered a lot of her people. And again, right <laughs> in terms of the subversion of things that you would expect that Chris Pine gets the big yeah, hero like, moment. Yeah, this is for my wife or, yeah. you know, like, something, yeah. And he really doesn't. Like, all he does, basically, no. like, most of what he does in the final battle is, like, acting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just monologuing. And that, and again, that's what he says at the beginning, is I make plans, and this is clearly yeah. a well-thought-out yeah. yeah. plan. Yeah. I mean, it. one of my little bugbears of movies is the Ocean Eleven effect of um, everything has to work perfectly, exactly the way it is, yeah. and mm-hmm. we, we're not allowed it's to know... Like the, it's called like the unspoken plan guarantee that like if they name the plan like in the like you know that it won't go well but like the plan we don't hear is the one that's going to work exactly Mm -hmm. yeah and like i felt that this was actually like a good example of that like when she came up with the bracelet i was like oh he did say to her use your pendant and that's how she used her pendant and like it managed to strike like a good balance between that trope but also letting the audience know like just enough of what was about to happen. Yeah. Like, so I good, thought that that was really well done. Like, it didn't annoy me like yeah. it would have in another movie. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it, I said it, it's really well done. So Safina has absolutely been crushed and is dead. So yeah. won't be bringing it back later on, which is good because it'd be nice for them to go on to a completely new yeah. story. If there's a sequel, fingers crossed there is. 
So the thing, however, that I didn't love with the end yeah. is that in the process of all of this, uh, you know, there's a whole thing with like, right, the Red Wizard's blades are, I mean, basically they're like the Nazgul's blades, I guess. Uh, so like. But even faster. Uh, yeah, but like even faster. <laughs> like they're like, that's going to fuck you up. You're not going to make it. Um, yeah. Holka gets stabbed and dies and, you know, and then we have the moment, right, where Edgen realizes, like, he is, has been being selfish by, you know, insisting that he, you know, needs this tablet, which he has gotten to bring his wife back, and decides that what's really best for his daughter is to instead use it now to bring Hulka back. And I'm really glad she didn't die, but also, mm-hmm. why does it always have to be the women? Yeah, I had, like, mixed feelings about this, because, like, they do the standard, like, fake-out of, like, seeing everybody being like, yeah, we did it, and then you look over and Holga is, like, on the ground dying, and is like, did we do it? Did we do it? And, like, my mom audibly was like, no! And it was, like, you know, that, like, moment. Yeah. And I mentioned that, like, I saw this on, like, an anniversary related Mm -hmm. to my having lost a parent, so, like... I, I really thought that they did this well. I was so touched that it was about him recognizing yeah. that she had been the true parent to his daughter and that, you know, she was what their family really needed as opposed to, like, him. Like, there's been this recurring theme of him seeing a dragonfly and remembering when his wife persuaded him to let the dragonfly go mm-hmm. instead of killing it. And, like, of course, it's symbolic. The dragonfly is his wife and he needs to, like, let go of that memory but, like, they really show, like, this montage of him remembering, like, all these times that Holga was there for yeah. the family. I'm sitting there crying yeah, my eyes no, out. Yeah, really also, like, also, like, feeling manipulated yeah. by it in a way that I'm like, you didn't have to do this. I'm glad you're doing it this way Yeah, you're going to do it. And that it's not about, like, I have to let go of my dead wife so I can fuck my best friend that I realize that I really love. Like, it was about... Yeah, like, it was really about their family, yeah. and I thought it was great, but I'm also like, we didn't have to do this trope again. Well, yeah. They didn't have to, but in the, the situation where they were at is they were left in a, like, because they had made that as this is the goal, right, is to get this resurrection yeah. stone. At the end, they were you left in a situation it. where it has to be used, yeah. it's, it's there. It was the same with the bracelet was Chekhov's bracelet, like, or necklace was Chekhov's yeah. necklace. But the fact that they were there, um, he is left there with the situation of like if somebody doesn't get hurt to the point where they're gonna die his wife has to come back so we've already had reggie john page say don't do that she's been living her life on the the next plane right so you can't realistically can't do that um yeah of course but it could have been chris pine but this is what i'm getting to is chris pine as the good guy in the movie or whatever happens Mm -hmm. to be would have had to say no yeah like if it, he can't then say that the choice is me coming back or my wife coming back, Chris Pine can't have it be him who comes back. Like, well, but so, it just it wouldn't have been his moment anymore, right? It would have been that, like yeah. some. It would have been that like Hulk would have had to say like, look, like the parent your daughter needs is you. Like you can't, yeah. you don't get to decide to abandon her again. But. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it would be almost interesting to me if it had been Chris Pine and it was more about, like, Holga saying to Kira, like, what do, do you, you want? want him to come back so that you can have that relationship that you got robbed of, like, or, like, you know, something else. Like, yeah. it would have been interesting to give women, like, agency in that way. Yeah. And again, it would have been, like, 
a reversal of the fridging trope that may not yeah. necessarily be successful, but it would at least be different and not the almost killing. It would have been right. it, it would so. have been different, yes, but it would also still have just been the same trope. And in that case, yeah. then. But I do think that the gender of the trope matters, though. Like, and especially, I think yeah. it like would have been interesting to have again it like the the choice being like as tracy was saying right to like give the women some agency for this and have it be like up to them to like figure out what what they actually want and like but so again the the problem is what does chris pine's entire arc in the movie then yeah if chris pine dies at the end and somebody else makes a decision to bring him back then what we his entire arc is i'm bringing my wife back I'm like the reason I ended up being in prison for two years is I went to get this stone to bring my wife back. And then he realizes actually my daughter has never known my wife. My, my daughter has been raised by another person. This is the mother that my child has already, has always known. And me wanting to bring my wife back is not for my daughter's sake. It's been for my sake all the time. And I'm going to make the sacrifice to say, I'm not bringing my wife back. I'm bringing, I'm making the decision that my child, this is for you, Kira. This is the mother that you've always had. Whereas if you don't have that point, then if it's Chris Pine who dies, uh, like I, I totally get that it doesn't have to be Holga. It could have been Justice Smith. But like, could you also argue that if he had been the one to die and they bring him back, it could have been more now that he's had this life which he fucked up and is now getting a second lease on life like he resolves not to make that mistake again and to be more present for his daughter now that he's been given the chance like to come I back. mean I think part of the problem is that like okay and I think there is something to be said for the fact that like that in terms of like the move of the narrative arc this is the one they needed to make but it's the move they needed to make because of like the fridging that there was to start with right I mean if yeah. they didn't have that aspect of it and like you know like if they didn't have that aspect of it I feel like then it could be more focused on like the like him abandoning his daughter again and again and again and again making the choice to like abandon his daughter and then it being like you don't get to make the choice to abandon your daughter again yeah agree I, I, I the, the mistake was making the the fridging in the beginning if yeah. chris if chris Pine, <laughs> it just all comes back yeah and it. that's the problem the other big problem is uh and i i would like to think that the screenwriters had thought about this or the directors had thought about this if chris pine is the one who dies they absolutely would have put in a scene of him and his wife in the afterlife and then we yeah, would have had to watch five dumb. minutes of them having a chat <laughs> And then her saying, no, no, they're calling you back to Kira. Kira needs Yeah, him you. saying, like, yeah. go be with our fucking kid, you coward. I know. Uh, <laughs> and I feel like that would have, like, made it even worse. Yeah. Like, especially, I always think of um, Emma Thompson had an interview where she talked about how early in her career, she was just offered, like, a series of roles where it was her saying to the man, like, don't go do the brave thing. Yeah. And she's like, and I said no to all of them and I'm so proud. So like, I would have been even more mad if it was like him reuniting with his wife. And yeah. Like, go and do the noble thing and like, you know, live and be with our daughter. I would have been so pissed. Yeah. So it would just be like a, a woman just like reduced to that like role would have annoyed me. Yeah. More. So I think that's the thing, right? Is that like, I, yeah. I think that like given where they, wrote themselves i think maybe this is like very possibly was the best they could have done but i think they really like 
I'm still tired of it. Yeah, and I think it was like they made ultimately the lazy choice, right, to have like dead wife be his motivation. And uh, then like that meant essentially that like, oh, then you need to have another dead woman to like narratively function as motivation. Like, okay. I don't think it it necessarily had to be Holga. It's more symbolic because, again, that's what they're doing. Holga's been the mom the entire time. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm I'm making the choice to take back. I mean, well, who the fuck else is going to be like? She doesn't have the same relationship with like Simon or Doric, right? It's it's not not like he's going to like you know like sacrifice his dead wife for like Forge. (laughs) (laughs) And because the love connection between Justice Smith and Doric, I keep calling him Simon and Doric, is so underplayed. Uh, And subtly in in a good way. Um, There's no way it can't even be her crying over his corpse right and that and would be yeah. that like, would not be, make any sense it wouldn't make it any would sense because totally they're not false. out there yeah and like it can't be a last minute um redemption for forge because right. nobody would care about forge so you basically you're left with it because of what happened at the beginning kind yeah. of has to be holga it's the only one that makes sense i mean i mean you could have the little girl get stabbed but no. Oh, that actually... That, then it would just get depressing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially if Chris Pine goes, didn't like her anyway. <laughs> bring back. Yeah, I mean, if I bring back my dead wife, yeah, we can make a new kid. <laughs> a better child. <laughs> Maybe we can have a son. Oh my God. This time, I won't fuck it up and make my kid hate me. Eh? Eh? <laughs> That would be like a, a movie written by like a terrible male screenwriter who Joe, just like doesn't understand emotion. Joe Dapatai wrote that movie. That's what's yeah, going on. Like... Or James Gunn. <laughs> Fuck you, James Gunn. <laughs> and that's it. That's the end of the movie. Yeah, Except, is. sorry, Forge goes to Revel's End and tries to escape. Oh, yes. The same as they did at the beginning. <laughs> but um, they've changed us now bricks over the window and uh, basically he... <laughs> He doesn't get out. They've like fortified the windows. But poor Jonathan who gets like slammed into this wall. Like It's his own fault for having the name like Jonathan. <laughs> so with that, we can move into the next section where we talk about what the film got right and wrong, historically speaking, because uh, this is obviously a very historically centered film. And uh, Ollie, what is the section called? <clears throat> There it falls. Thank you. So, I'm not getting better, just so everybody knows. Like, <laughs> it's even worse. Uh, oh. so- <laughs> I'm glad Holga died. Take that, Sarah. <laughs> How dare. <laughs> so let's talk about material culture. Um, so, okay. Positives. Uh, I like in Neverwinter that the palace and the city are interconnected. I feel like there's a lot of things where like castles exist in like weird isolation and there are never people around it, which is like never how castles work. And so I like that. Uh, there's also like actually some lovely 15th century vaulting in the uh, the bit uh, where um, Holga and Edgin are waiting for Kira the first time. Some very nice vaulting. Uh, the palace, however, is, I would say, like, a mix, stylistically speaking, of, like, things that are sort of 14th century and things that are, like, sort of 17th century. And, like, yeah, so just overall, like, a mixed bag. Um, clothing also kind of a mix, like, a lot of it's very, like, Renfair armor sort of stuff. 
Um, Forge looks like he like pop. Forge basically looks like he could be in a Jane Austen movie. Actually, <laughs> he does. <laughs> it's just an homage to Sense and Sensibility. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> like I'm pretty sure like Hugh Grant is like, can I still fit into my outfit for when I was in Sense and Sensibility, and that's what he's wearing. <laughs> Um, you know, so we're mixed on that. Uh, Kara's dress, I would say, looks like semi-plausibly like late medieval, early modern. So, so, so. Uh, I will, however, note the uh, the ugly, really ugly portrait that they used to sneak in. That shit is like eight, like eighteenth century. <laughs> that is absolutely not medieval. Trissy, you sent us a, a link to um, yes, these particular paintings. We, we might put those into the show notes as well. But like, it's. It's bad. It became a, a really popular <laughs> the, Yeah, like, yeah, no, I remember know, that those. You see, like, circling around because it was, yeah, it was, like, a 17th or 18th century portrait artist who, like, made these really modern self-portraits where he's, like, almost posing for a camera. I know, and he's kind like, of, like, like doing, like, he looks like he's doing, like, finger guns at the end. Yeah, and, like, they're these really great, like, unexpected portraits, and I was looking at the portrait the whole time it was on screen, like, is that what they're going for? Like, because that's what it felt like, but, yeah, it was definitely not medieval. No, it was absolutely not. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll have to take off some, you know, some credit for that. Um... <laughs> Uh, I'll also note that so we have these these games which are very much like a kind of like gladiatorial style games in terms of what the inspiration is um, as that is uh, I would say of the the precisely probably like two things that the movie Gladiator gets right is in fact that the gladiatorial <laughs> games are uh, a thing that is associated with the Roman Empire um, which means that they are not in fact you know a standard medieval thing uh, that they had fallen out of favor at that point. On the other so, hand, is it really that different from, like, tournaments where absolutely people, like, did sometimes die in, like, jousting accidents or in, like, the melee games, which are just, like, fuck it, here's a mock battle now? <laughs> you know, but I, I think that is, like, somewhat different from the gladiatorial games where, like, kind of the goal was that somebody's probably going to die. I have to say on the Ren Fair note, too, one, like, subtle thing that I really like that they snuck in is that at one point, Edgen is eating a giant turkey leg. Yes! <laughs> yeah. It's just, like, it's not called out at all, but I laughed my ass off because, like, that's such, like, a staple of Ren Fair. Yes. It's like, it's I'm very glad good, that like, they, like, just he's just put biting in, like, into it, like, yeah. like, no reason yeah. like that. So that's definitely something that I feel like was very deliberate. I feel like that's true of the clothing as well. Like, I, you know, yeah. like, I would not have expected anything different in terms of the clothing, uh, nor even would I have wanted it in this particular context. Like, that's clearly what they should do um the uh other thing however that i will say is that uh gambling including like betting on the outcome of various games uh was in fact something that people did in the middle ages and that it often was like socially stratified like stratified and so that it would be like the rich people together doing certain kinds of betting uh and like poor people like doing like their own like lower you know stakes in terms of total amount of money betting like in a different setting and so i think you know in that aspect right that we have the sense that there's like the like upstairs room where the really rich people are gambling and then they all die makes sense uh i'm also going to comment on a uh, government in this film <laughs> which is in that, the like, film sarah yeah it is, it is somewhat unclear if there's, like, an overall centralized authority in that there seems like there's a centralized judicial system with a lot of authority over, like, kind of everybody. But it's not clear, like, what is the basis for the centralized judicial system? Like, is there, like, a king or anything like that? Like, why is it that, like, 
Jarnathan gets to, like, decide whether or not people, like, end up in and stay in prison. Um, Because it doesn't seem like that's the, like, Lord of Neverwinter who's, like, doing that. Because, like, then you would think, in fact, that, like, you know, he would have, like, pulled strings and, like, they never would have gotten their pardon um, because, like, uh, P. Grant Forge is the Lord of Neverwinter now. Um, So that's, like, a little, like, unclear in a way that I feel like governmental systems in, like, medieval fantasy is often, like, sort of unclear. Um, I will, however, say that I do think it's interesting that we have an example of what seems to be basically a kind of, like, urban democracy where there is an elected leader, where, like, the Lord of Neverwinter is elected. And it is, in fact, the case that, like, especially when you're looking at the Mediterranean, like, the Italian peninsula in particular, that it is pretty common that you do, in fact, have, like, urban democracies. And, you know, democracies in the sense that, like, it's, like, rich men. Yeah. But, you know, it's, like, a lot of rich men. It's, you know, <laughs> you know that you have these, like, <laughs> urban oligarchies, essentially, right? And yeah. so, you know, it's still, like, it's all men. It still is, like all people who are relatively wealthy. It still cuts out people who are like belong to like religiously marginalized groups, etc. cetera. Uh, but that you do have this kind of possibility of elected leadership, but because it is so oligarchical, because it really is just focused on a relatively small elite, uh, it will, I will just say have been like very difficult for like, Forge Fitzwilliam, who is just like some like random con man, it at least like I'll I'll just say like it like it's pretty impressive for him to have like managed to get elected. Yeah, and I think it it's just with all of the money that he'd stolen. So I I'm assuming he just means he just bought votes, bought votes, and I would imagine potentially like to make it makes like in terms of it making sense in like a comparable context, like potentially also doing some like forgeries in terms of like who his family was or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, you know, it's fantasy. They can kind of do what they want. So I didn't have like a ton of other things, but uh, I did want to inspired by the film in general and D and D or the, the film in particular and D and D more broadly Uh, talk a little bit about, in particular, another kind of big uh, sort of phenomenon that's kind of feeding into this world building. Uh, In the segment where I talk about a particular real person, event, or phenomenon, which is called... Historia et Veritas. There we go. Got some... There we go. I put some oomph into that one. I know. I know. It was better (laughs) than the last one. I didn't put any notes into it, but there was definitely (laughs) oomph. Just a general yeah. booming voice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of like, to the extent that there is like a historically realistic setting in like this film, D&D stuff in general, like most medieval fantasy in general, I would say it mostly tends to be evoking the later Middle Ages or like maybe even kind of veering into the early modern period. Uh, The religious landscape, I would say, however, to the extent that it's drawing on anything, seems like it fits more into a much earlier period in the Middle Ages. Uh, And in particular, the fact that you have a multiplicity of religions, including uh, a number that seem to be like vaguely polytheistic religions. Hmm. So when we're talking about, you know, the medieval European landscape, which tends to be the inspiration here... Uh, the dominant religion is obviously Christianity. 
Yeah. Um, and we see, first of all, right, that like D&D seems to like not be interested and most fantasy seems to not be interested in like a lot of monotheistic religions. So, you know, so then ignoring the fact that like not only Christianity, but the two, I would say, main within the context of medieval Europe, you know, other religious options, Judaism and Islam are also monotheistic faiths with there being, you know, a couple of places, Siberian Peninsula, at various points, Sicily, that are under Muslim rule. But, you know, they're also being places where Muslims live as a subordinated community and a lot of places where Jews live as a subordinated community. And would there have been, like, within the pagan world, like, so, for example, in Ireland, there was the she or whatever you want to call them, the fairies or whatever. Like, would they have been considered polytheistic? Yeah, so that's what I was going to kind of get into, is that there's a lot of stuff that like some of it gets kind of kept as like local folk mythology, but that you don't, but that like you lose, I would say once you're out of like the early middle ages, um, a real like full on polytheistic system. So like you can get away with keeping like beliefs about like the fairy or the fae, but you're not like straight up like, having a polytheistic like religion where you have like various like nature gods who you're actively worshiping right like as christianity becomes dominant like christianity in general is like not particularly tolerant um you know any faith that is not christianity is like legally marginalized and people who belong to that faith are often subject to violence but you only even get the option of like existing as a tolerated group within limits in christendom if you're also a member of, you know, a monotheistic faith. So that, like, all of, essentially, like, what basically happens is that, like, the later you get into the Middle Ages, the more any, like, full-on practice of a polytheistic faith is essentially completely wiped out. Um, So, you know, we talk about the Druids here, right? That, like, Druids are, you know, uh, Doric is a Druid. That's a really common group in D&D. And, you know, we know about druids, like druids are real. They probably didn't actually have magic, Um, but, you know, (laughs) they exist in like like various like ancient Celtic religions. They're like religious professionals who function as like basically both priests and as judges. Um, they get talked about in detail, like Julius Caesar apparently like, like wrote a lot about Druids. Uh, one of the things that you often will see that's kind of problematic in terms of even understanding much about these polytheistic religions is that most of what we have written about them tend to be Roman sources, which sort of look down on them for being like vaguely barbaric because they think anybody who's not Roman is vaguely barbaric. Then Christian sources who, you know, think anybody who's not Christian is vaguely barbaric. Uh, The things that often tend to be, I would say, most at least, like, somewhat sympathetic are things that are, like, epics and other, like, narratives that are probably, like, written versions of older oral narratives, but that it gets complicated when you're talking about stories where it's like, okay, by the time they're actually written down, they're written down in a Christian context. And so to what extent are they, like, really effectively representing these polytheistic religions that have essentially been wiped out? I'm assuming that that's um, a problem that happens all the time, um, is that the people who are writing stuff down are coming at it from their version of events and how they see it. Um, You just mentioned the Romans, and as soon as you did, I just had this really strong memory of the Asterix and Obelix stories and and Getafix the Druid. 
and basically the Romans couldn't understand why he was or what his position or what his function was right. in, in the society. And then as, as we were growing up in Ireland, um, obviously a Celtic country and with, with Celtic heritage or whatever, we were always taught about Druids and Druids were effectively, they were the priests before priests came along, before St. Mm-hmm. Patrick or before Christianity. But it goes way beyond that. Like it's it, it, like they were the storytellers, they were the history keepers and stuff. Yeah. So they would be passing down those stories that, as you said, didn't get didn't get any further because when people started writing them down, they weren't interested in writing down what the Druids mm-hmm. had to say. Yeah, they were teachers, they were judges, like they were very like multifunctional figures. Um, and, you know, and it's also I'll note in terms of like our, our kind of fundamental lack of understanding, like we're still debating if Druids practiced human sacrifice because like the Romans said they did, but like the Romans were probably being assholes. So yeah. <laughs> and like archaeological evidence is inconclusive. So like there like have been like some mass graves that have been found in like I think Wales and they're like, well, maybe this is a mass grave because they did mass human sacrifices. And then somebody else is like, well, maybe it's a mass grave because they like buried all the honored warriors who died in a battle in one place. Like, yeah, and, and the answer is we have much more no sense. idea. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it probably it probably does make more sense. And regardless, like, we have no idea because, you know, pretty much all of the things that say that human sacrifice was practiced are sources where they, like, actively kind of want to make these religions look bad. Um, so we certainly, like, shouldn't trust those. But, like, genuinely, we kind of don't know. Hmm. Um. I will note that there uh, there was as you there is one last essentially kind of like bastion of polytheism as you move into the late Middle Ages, which is Lithuania. Sounds about right. Uh huh. It's crazy Balkans. Yeah. So Lithuania is not considered fully Christianized until 1387, which is like pretty late. I mean, because when you're talking about say, like yeah, yeah, because like, like, like when you're talking 300, about like 400 years later than everywhere else. I mean, more. I mean, when you're talking about the places where like druids are running around, you know, like the you know like. Ireland, Wales, like basically by like the seventh century, we have no reason to think that there are like active functioning druids anymore. Yeah. Um, so like if there are, they're like very, very much driven underground and basically like these lands are Christianized. So yeah, so you know, this is like quite a bit later. Um, you know, and so we've got like a Lithuanian polytheism. It's, you know, there's like a lot of gods associated with like various nature forces. They got a thunder god, they've got like a sky god. Uh, you know, you're kind of your standard like you know there there are goddesses as well yeah. uh you know a lot of there there's like a lot of similarity between a lot of the like polytheistic pantheons that you see in europe um and the other thing to note is that like we actually then have pretty like good sources in the sense of like what then happens in terms of like the efforts at like in terms of like christianization when like essentially the like king of lithuania is like yeah we're christian now um, is that like that means that we're going to actively destroy altars and sacred grooves and other sacred sites and also do things like so there's like a few kinds of snakes that are considered to be like ha- kind of like spirits or representatives of spirits and are like seen as protecting the household and so like people keep them as pets and so they just like murdered a fuck ton of snakes. Yeah. <laughs> For Christianity. Of course, yeah. That's what Jesus Whacking Day in the Simpsons is all about. <laughs> Jesus hates snakes. Uh, we got rid of them from Ireland. Yeah, I, I, exactly. St. Patrick. There was a there was a meme I saw on St. Patrick's Day that was St. Patrick's Day, and it was like a it was bringing in snakes on a plane. I'm tired of these motherfucking snakes <laughs> in this motherfucking country. <laughs> <laughs> so. 
Um, I will say, however, that uh, I'm going to I'm going to be very controversial and say that you know what the real polytheistic faith that existed in uh, medieval Europe was Christianity. <laughs> There's one God, sir. <sighs> Okay, so first of all, like, there's, like, three not, gods That's not one. how the Holy Trinity works, sir. I know that's not how the Holy Trinity is supposed to work, but kind of, you got three. <laughs> and in addition, the Virgin Mary is essentially treated as a goddess figure. Like, if you look at medieval imagery of the Virgin Mary. It's like the Virgin Mary being like crowned as queen of heaven and sitting next to her like son slash husband. It also gets kind of weird if you think too much about it. Like they, <laughs> like it gets like real incestuous real fast if you think about it for like more than a few minutes. Um, Sarah, I'm just saying, just go back to, let's say about four or five minutes ago uh, where you were like, oh, the Romans would make up any sort of weird stories about the Druids. Just just keep that in mind as you continue on this weird narrative you're creating about the incestuous relationship between and, the Virgin Mary and uh, God this, and Jesus. This isn't me. There is like there is like medieval poetry that is like that like emphasizes this in fact, that is like wrestling with the like kind of incestuous, like Mary is God's mother, wife, and daughter. Yeah, but <laughs> because of how the Trinity works. That's the tr- and because all cho- we're all children of God. Works in mysterious ways, Sarah. But so that means um, that Mary is God's mother, wife, and daughter, which, like, they acknowledge is, like, that's kind of weird. Medieval poetry is the worldwide equivalent of writing high school poetry for the girl that you like in, the, in your French class, right? It's not the best. So Some of it's, it's going great, to be... like the poems that is really emphasizing the vaguely incestuous relationship that the Virgin Mary has with God, which is very, like, you know, very much akin to the, you know, like, polytheistic, like, Zeus and Hera are siblings and husband and wife. It better have a really good rhyming scheme, or I'm not going to appreciate this poetry at all. <laughs> And in addition, I will also note that when you actually look at, like, sanctity and, like, the tradition of saints in medieval Europe, also, so technically there is a distinction between worship and veneration. But I think there is a question about how clear that distinction is to all ordinary people. Like, when you are, say, making a votive offering to a saint, you know, which, like, people did, like, how different psychologically is that really from, like, sacrificing on an altar to a pagan god? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, the whole not sacrificing would be a, a bit of a key difference. Well, there, you wouldn't Sarah. do human sacrifices, but, like, not all, like pagan certainly as we've already discussed like it's certainly like we should not trust things that say like that human sacrifices are commonplace and in fact like not all even like polytheistic sacrifices are like animal sacrifices necessarily well i'm, I'm not I, I know you said you wouldn't necessarily do human sacrifice but if you want to get the best indulgences like <laughs> I mean, people are the way to go i mean isn't that basically the idea behind the crusades it's almost a hundred percent the idea behind the crusades. Uh-huh, uh-huh. A human sacrifice so you can go to heaven. So you can get into heaven. You have to mm-hmm. go and fight your corner. Mm-hmm. And also take back, you know, the 
good parts from certain nasty people who took you it have to go. You have to go murder Muslims in order to get into heaven. That is the ideology I, of the Crusades. That I is the ideology not say of the Crusades. That, Sarah, that is not <laughs> words that come out of my mouth. That is my professional opinion as a historian, is that the ideology of the Crusades is fundamentally murder Muslims to go to heaven. But they, they, yeah, you don't even have to be a historian to say yes, that. That's pretty that's, much that's what, what they it are. Means. That's what it means. Um, but in addition, I will note, I think there's also some really interesting specific examples of how some of the kind of like local discourses around sanctity reveal ways in which like certain polytheistic practices uh, kind of like have a long lifespan even and rituals, even if they, you know, it like people have long since formally adopted Christianity. And that includes uh, veneration of not super recognized saints. Yeah, so, you're going to, I know exactly where this is going. I so. know, my favorite, my favorite story. And this is the uh, veneration in a small town in France of St. Guinefort, the dog saint, who is my uh, favorite saint. Because he's a dog. Because he's a dog, which makes him better than most saints who are saints because they like suggested that you should kill more Jews. Uh, this is, this is, <laughs> this just makes France the North Carolina of uh medieval europe because north carolina is definitely the kind of place where they would elect a dog mayor right so there are and times you know, honestly, in that place i've elected a dog mayor and france bloody went and canonized the dog given the elected officials in most of the state yeah, of tennessee i take a dog i think i think my dog should in, should replace most of the tennessee state legislature in yeah, fact that's listen uh popey as we like to call her <laughs> She's gone way beyond mayor status at this point. She can do both. Uh, She's very smart. I have to say that, you know, as, like, as a queer woman, I trust a dog more than I trust most Republicans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, same, you know, so. same. I also feel that way. As, yeah, as a queer woman in the state of Tennessee, like, <laughs> let's replace just most of the Tennessee state legislature with dogs. And as an Irish person... I don't trust Republicans at all, but they mean something completely different over here. So we try not, we try not to talk about them too much. Those guys have guns. Wait, no, that's very similar to what York Republicans have. So uh, St. Guinefort. So the, the story of St. Guinefort is that uh, St. Guinefort was a very, very good boy. And he oh was uh, protecting a kid. And then a snake, because, you know, as we've discussed, snakes are the worst. So snake came in and tried to kill the kid and he kills it. And St. Guinefort kills the snake. And then the dad comes in and then just like sees like the blood on the dog's mouth and kills the dog. So the dog is, you know, a martyr and hmm. uh, then realizes immediately that, you know, he was a fucking idiot and the kid's fine and like sees the dead snake and is like, eh, well, that's that was done with me, I guess. And so <laughs> people hear about this, you know, story allegedly. Right. And start venerating Guinefort as a saint, as is his due, because he was a very, very good dog. Uh, all dogs go to heaven, as we know, and some are saints. And <laughs> but in addition, that there's like a lot of the so the person who reports this story, who is this like Dominican friar, Stephen of Bourbon, who just like showed up in this town. Everyone's like, "Yeah, Saint Guinefort," and he's like, "What the fuck? No, you cannot fucking do this." Um, Dominicans, the worst. Um, so. <laughs> They think they're warriors for God. 
And the joke <sighs> actually is that they were because it's so dumb. And if you split so dominicanes, right, is how you would say it in Latin. And if you split it, that would actually translate to uh, like dominicanes would be the, uh, the the dogs or hounds of the Lord. Um, <laughs> so they're the only dogs who don't go to heaven. Uh, <laughs> are, <laughs> well, I mean, they wouldn't. They, Not according they wouldn't to normally me. go to heaven, but if they were part of the Crusades, they probably get But there are all of these, like, rituals of, like, people who have, like, children who are ill. They, like, bring the children, like, out to the woods and, like, ditch the kid in the woods and, like, pray to St. Guinefort. And the next day, either the, ch- allegedly according to the ritual, uh, either the next day the child is there and is now perfectly fine because it's been cured by St. Guinefort, uh, or it's dead now and probably gone because it was eaten by wolves. Because it had sin. Or, I mean, or just because, like, it wasn't wasn't going to happen. Even St. Guinefort has its limits. I wonder how many children actually died because of that. I mean, probably some, but they were also probably kids who were, like, very possibly going to die anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the dog's fault. Yeah. Well. I mean, like, infant mortality was already very high. <laughs> <laughs> and people said that the Spartans were disgusting for doing it. So anyway, if I ever do like a D&D campaign, that's that's what I want to do. I want to have my character. I want to be like a paladin who is like or, or who is like devo- like a devotee of St. Guinefort. <laughs> but I want to be one of the cat people. I think that would be very funny. Tabaxi. Just the cat that really loves dogs. Uh-huh. <laughs> and my cat really likes my dog. I don't think she likes Aww. other dogs, but she likes my dog. Well, she probably doesn't get to meet other dogs very often. She hasn't. It's mostly gone poorly. Yeah, but she's an indoor kitty. So she's yeah. she's not going to hang out with her cats. Sarah, should we move on to the next segment, which is Fabulanostra? We should. So this is the section where we come up with a film or piece of media inspired by this one. <laughs> where... Which we are all coming up on as we've been recording for three hours. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's probably my fault. We're always fault. We're all of our faults. Wait, really. wait, wait. I'm, <laughs> wait. I know it's probably Ollie's fault. There's a good chance it is my fault. <laughs> Official designation. It's Ollie's fault. So. <laughs> so. Anybody <laughs> want to start? Okay, I'll start. Um, yeah, I. Uh, I grew up with the the cartoon um, Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, it was fantastic. I said it was limited number of episodes and never finished it, so I'd like to get some closure to that. So the plot of Dungeons and Dragons is they were at a theme park ride and they get sucked into this new world, right? Uh-huh. Um, there were six of them, if I remember correctly. I'm just going to look them up here. I know one was Eric. There was another one was Diana, and <laughs> on a second, what was the girl with red hair called uh sheila and then hank was the ranger and then there were two little kids one of them got turned into like a little unicorn which was always very funny and then one of them was like this little barbarian bobby the barbarian who was basically a ripoff of bam bam from um (laughs) from the flintstones so i would like them to remake that uh where they follow the exact same plot line they have to fight tiamat (laughs) they have to fight against uh not Arsene Wenger for the football fans out there, but uh, Wenger was just like an evil wizard dude. So I'd like to see them. Uh, I'm going to get some qu- casting for this. Uh, Sheila, red hair. She can be played by Karen Gillan. Give her something to do. Um, 
Jenna Ortega can be Diana because Jenna Ortega is just great. Um, and she was an acrobat. And I think she did acrobatics when she was in, in school as well. Hank can be played by, name a handsome blonde actor in his 20s. Austin Butler. Let's say it's Austin Butler. He <laughs> played Elvis. And then Eric the Cavalier, who I hated as a kid. Because um, he's basically just sanctimonious little twat. He's one of the Pevensies, basically, from um, <laughs> from Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. He's just so annoying. Um, so I'm going to have him be played by Jack Quaid. And basically, they get sucked in. Whoever plays the, the Barbarian and the Unicorn, who are much younger, they can, you know, I don't. I don't really care. Let's just say Donald Glover can be the uniform unicorn. There we go. He's a great. He's 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 brilliant. I love his voice acting, so it'd be brilliant for him. But basically, they get sucked in and they have to try and find a way to escape. And uh, I can finally get closure on watching that cartoon all those years ago. There you go, Tracy. What about you? Um, my friend Haley had the really excellent idea to make more movies with this same cast but have everyone play a different class every time oh, that would so be very fun, fun. Mm. and i think that that would be really interesting because i feel like going on with these characters would risk them running out of ideas and kind of mm-hmm. ruining like what was special about yeah. this one for me so like the more i thought about it i'm like no they had the right idea like just use this same cast but like let them do something different each time and i think that would be really cool i think that would be super fun <laughs> yeah i really like that yeah. um I think so I was like very intrigued with the by the red wizards and would love to get more backstory on them. So I would like a film that is like focused on that context. And uh, I am going to my one piece of casting is that I am going to uh, cast as uh, Sophina's dad. I'm going to cast Anthony. Head. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, what, and would you call it Dungeons and Dragons or would you call it like Red Rising or something like that? Dungeons and Dragons colon Red Rising. Nice. And actually, uh, so actually, now that I'm actually thinking of this for more than like four seconds, um, (laughs) I think it actually would be fun. So like one of the things that I think is really effective about the Star Wars film Rogue One is that I think it does a really, I think it's amazing. I love Rogue One. I love Rogue One. And I think like one of the things that's so effective about it is that it manages to really kind of make you like really invested and care about this group of people and be really invested in the storyline, even though like you ultimately kind of know what's going to happen. Yeah. Mm. And so actually that would be fun is if there's like a D&D party, you know, kind of party essentially who is like going and trying to stop the like red wizards from like doing the whole like thing that they do in Thay. And because yeah. it's a prequel, you know that they are going to fail and that like very yeah. possibly all of them are going to die. But if it's really good, maybe you'll still like, maybe you'll still like actually really care about them and that'll be yeah. awesome. That sounds really yeah. good. I'd like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's what I would like to do is like the, the sort of vaguely rogue one inspired prequel. So yeah, it's like dungeons and dragons colon, like red rising or something like that. Yeah. And the nice. like, and like the, and we'll just have like that, like main guy, like Zach's Tam, or I don't remember his name. Um, <laughs> that is going, that, that's going to be Anthony head. Cause I think that would be funny. I think that would be funny. So with that, we can do the section where you rate the film, which is called the, <laughs> Estimatio. <laughs> so I'll go first this time. We can switch the order. Uh, I'm going to give this a four out of five. I found this really charming. I'd like to see some sort of sequel. 
Um, Overall, really enjoyed it. I think there are a lot of things also that this film did well in terms of gender, Mm -hmm. which I almost never say. Um, same, (laughs) uh, you know, taking some point, you know, taking like probably, you know, a little bit off, you know, in terms of being a four out of five and not a five out of five, I'm taking some, you know, some, a bit off for the fridging, but like this movie does, however, you know, in part, thanks to a resurrection, but still, uh, does handily ultimately pass the it Decker test with, uh, two named Mm -hmm. surviving female character or sorry, three, three mains, three surviving Mm -hmm. named female characters, all of whom like contribute to the plot, uh, none of whom are primarily there as somebody's love interest. Like, mm-hmm. that's actually pretty good. Um, and so, yeah, basically I'm taking off a little bit for the fridging and a little bit because I think they should have used a medieval portrait as opposed to whatever that 18th century <laughs> nonsense was. <laughs> Tracy, what do you think? Um, yeah, I I definitely think it's like a 4.5 for me. Like, I'm just like, the fridging really is the thing that like bugs me. Yeah. I'm like, it didn't like, he did not need the dead wife. Like there could have been other ways to like yeah. go about this. But um, overall, just really fantastic. Um, the gender, you know, stuff like was really great. Um, really appreciating, you know, for me in particular, um, Justice Smith and Michelle mm-hmm. Rodriguez are uh, queer performers of color. Mm-hmm. I really think that um, that's a great thing to see in a mainstream blockbuster film, um, something we need more of right now when this country is like yeah. worse than ever about these kinds of things. Yeah. And um, just in general did stuff that I would love to see action movies do more of. Mm-hmm. And I was really like pleased by how often I was sitting there like thinking, oh, it's going to do like this terrible trope or thing that I'm tired of and it didn't and like that was it was smarter than I expected like a Hollywood film to be and that was really pleasant to like sit there and like watch it happen yeah yeah Ali um I think I've only done this twice I I I I love this I'm giving this five out of five I thought it was great actually genuinely enjoyed every single second of it I totally understand it the issues with the fridging it's a trope Mm -hmm. I hate but if they're going to do it, I like the way they did it here, where it was his fault. <laughs> like, yeah. and at least then there's a reason for him to feel upset. Now, I get why uh, yeah. I said the exact same thing about Perrin in Wheel of Time. And I was like, <laughs> well, it shouldn't be his fault. Yeah, but they created a character specifically to do that yeah. that wasn't in the source material. And Whereas this at least this, gave him a good arc. I this think. gives, like, it gives even, him a good arc. Like, I think they should have thought about it and not done the trope, but I think, like, they gave him, like, an arc that made For sense what, with it. If it had to be this, like, the fact that he admitted his own fault yeah. and, like, his selfishness, like, that, like, made it better than I would have felt about it otherwise. Yeah. Right, I mean, especially because he also kind of makes, like, it, he basically also kind of, like... Uh, Okay, I don't 100% think this. I'm kind of, like, being devil's advocate on this. But, like, one could argue that it's sort of a subversion in that at the end he, like, is, like, my motivation was supposed to be my dead wife. And actually that's kind of a shitty motivation. Yeah. Yeah. And Um, that's what I'm saying. So, I like, it's a shitty trope. This is as good as you can get with that trope. Um, mm -hmm. I like the fact that nothing was over, was heavy-handed here. Uh, characters got to be cool while at the same time being normal people. Like, Chris Pine's character is clearly a charismatic and charming guy. Chris Pine's a charismatic and charming guy. Uh, uh, Michelle Rodriguez plays a badass. Michelle Rodriguez is a badass. Like, (laughs) this stuff makes sense. Um, Justice Smith comes across in real life like a nerdy, quiet kid who, I mean, clearly he's a good-looking actor, dude, so he's not, like, Mm -hmm. nervous and shy, but he does a good job of 
portraying those types of characters. Um, the other girl whose name has escaped me now for a second, what, Sophia, Sophia Lillis. Lillis. Um, she does a great job of projecting confidence and youth and the 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 like um basically competency at mm-hmm. everything she does. Like she's the one who's calling Chris Pine out on what do you do. Like what? What do you actually do? I know what he does. I know what she does. What do you do? And she, he says, I make plans. And she goes, Well, the plans are already made. So what do you bring to the group now? And I appreciate all of these things. I said I loved the fact that there was no, um, the two men ogling, uh, mm-hmm. Doric at any point. There was no let's go into a bar and um. What was it, Beowulf? You did recently, Sarah, with the giant pendulous breasts. There was nothing like that, oh and like, my God. so you're in a movie where it's clearly set in this faux medieval period, but they're not hitting those tired, tired, you know, oh, titillation points, which every other movie of this type has always gone for. The humor I thought was really, really well written, and I thought, like, genuinely. I, I was gushing about this when I came out. I think it's a brilliant movie. I love how they've written it. I love how they made it, how they, every actor in it, all the writers, the director, everybody seems to have had fun and enjoyed themselves mm-hmm. on it. Yeah. Now, whether or not it makes enough money, and I really, realistically, I think it should. Like, this is better than yeah any yeah. of those Marvel movies for the last phase mm-hmm. and a half or whatever. I went to see it in like, theaters. I never yeah. see anything in theaters. <laughs> So, yeah, I absolutely loved it. Five out of five. Uh, genuinely, I think on this show, I've given 13th Warrior a six out of five. Um, <laughs> and I think the only other five... Wheel of Time. Well, Wheel of Time, the, the books, yeah. Um, I gave it a five out of five. Uh, but that's, I mean, I could have given it a 20 out of five if I wanted to. But uh, I think the only other one I gave was Marilyn. Yeah, I think and we both gave Marilyn I like this as much as I like Marilyn. And I fucking loved Marilyn so yeah um I like I like when things are done properly and this has been done properly yeah absolutely so thank you both so much for coming on and discussing this with me for the last three and a half hours (laughs) yeah thank you so much I'm so glad that we were able to do this yeah one thing we didn't get to see Chris Pine's peen but that's fine. We'll we'll see it again. We'll get on it. We'll, we'll I get mean, the last time, <laughs> as we discussed, it was like overplayed. Like there was way less penis than there was like supposed to be. Whoa, so. whoa, whoa! Don't attack the man's Shout out size. To the, uh... I'm not referring to size. I'm referring to there like, was way distance. less penis than I was led to believe. I'm referring to distance. I, the penis I will was never like forget. blink and you miss it. I, yeah, I will never forget that I looked down and take a note, and when I looked back up, I was like, wait, did it happen? <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is no offense to Chris Pine, but it is like blink and you miss it, penis. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, with that, uh, Tracy, where can the listeners find you on the internet? Um, so- <laughs> so we all know that Twitter is like a shit show right now, and I hardly used it anyway. Um, I I stream on YouTube sometimes, uh, like vid- sometimes like video games and things. I can I can give a link to that. Um, I'm uh-huh. also a tra- I'm also a traveling podcast nomad. You will probably hear me on other shows. Um, I guest occasionally on Falling in Love Montage, which is my friend's uh, chick flick podcast. I just recently talked about the Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice. Hmm. Um, for them, and uh, that was a really great time. So yeah, I um, I show up on other podcasts occasionally. I, they might be ones you listen to. <laughs> Excellent. And Ollie, what about you? Where can the listeners find you on the internet? 
you can't. I I keep saying this. I'm, I'm super duper hidden. You can never find me, and I don't want to you be found. Podcast. I don't. See, I keep saying this, and Megan keeps saying this, and they're like, "Oh, Oliver, you're a co-host of the podcast." I am a permanent guest host <laughs> on Judging Book Covers. Um, the two co-hosts. Stephanie Cortez and Megan Griffin, both of them have been on this podcast. They're brilliant people and they are the hosts and I am only there to provide flavor and color commentary <laughs> on their very interesting lives. Um, but yeah, Judging Book Covers where it's it's an online book club, a, a, mon- a monthly book club. Um, we did recently uh, Blackmail and Babinka, which was brilliant. Um, a, just a brilliant little story, a cozy mystery set on an island and just like, tons of really good recipes um yeah it's it's good i love doing a podcast actually i give a shout out to megan who just recently won a bunch of awards oh, for being yeah. a, 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 she's like a, an award-winning gm or dm yeah. or whatever it is for her monster of the week podcast which is now called welcome to reddington um and if you're listening to welcome to reddington i am doing a guest arc in I think it'll come out at the end of June. So you can listen to my uh, my character, who is Jimmy, who's a Boston cop. And Jimmy sounds exactly like I sound right now because I cannot do a Boston <laughs> accent. So this is close enough. Um, and he loves musicals. And I spend that entire thing. And I have to apologize to whoever's editing that. But I sing show tunes in the background throughout the entire thing i don't think they realized i was doing it because i was muting the stream but still recording on my end and i went through the vast majority of phantom of the opera during that four hour session so, <laughs> it's like really dramatic points when you're just like the phantom of the opera. That's, i'm telling you that's in the background of so many things amazing so yeah, uh, if you have enjoyed this podcast uh, for however many hours you've been listening to it, uh, please subscribe <laughs> in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil, especially on Apple Podcasts. There'll be new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter as long as Twitter exists. Probably by the next week, it'll still sort of exist, even though it's a cesspool at Media Evil Pod. <laughs> And join our Facebook group, given that Facebook is now surprisingly slightly less of a cesspool. The bar is low. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah H. Decker. And if you have any questions or suggestions, I would love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So, Ollie, Tracy, thank you again for joining me. A pleasure as always. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye.